Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host Tim, and joining me as always is... Catherine. And we are here this week to talk about another failure piece in the making, uh, another recent film. This time, Josh Boone's The New Mutants, the last film to be released out of the 20th Century Fox machine that churned out dozens of X-Men properties in a short amount of time, uh, and the last official film to be released by 20th Century Fox Studios in general, forever, uh, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, the X-Men are Disney's now, bitches. Deal with it. I, I, I guess. I don't, I don't have good feelings <laughs> about that. I, I am still very interested to see exactly how they plan to incorporate them into the existing MCU. Uh, I think it's going to be clunky, and they're going to have to do a bunch of back-bending histrionic craziness to try and show why they haven't been around at all. I d- we had a good thing with the X-Men and those movies, and it went sure. south for a while. We've had some... Some bad ones. Yeah. But couldn't we just not have X-Men for a while? <laughs> couldn't we just not do it? I, well, with all this, I think it is going to be a while. But but yes, yeah, so this is our, our last X-Men film as part of the, the X-Men universe that we have known since 2000 and the release of the original X-Men directed by Bryan Singer. And it Which ends has been not its with own a bang, little, but a whimper. You know, with a, a bit of a whimper. Uh, nothing to do with this film. This film was intended in its initial conception to sort of push the X-Men in a different direction, right? To create an alternative group of X-Men that we could follow and see go into different kind of adventures. Um, you know, really something that probably should have happened much, much earlier in Fox's, you know, X-Men game. Uh, but once that Hugh Jackman got involved, everybody's like, just put Hugh Jackman in it. More he's Hugh Jackman just so for charming. everyone. He's just, that's, he's, he's charismatic. He's that's the most six and charismatic a half foot man. Tall, that's six and a half foot tall Aussie man who can sing show tunes like that nobody's boy business. can dance. <laughs> that's our Wolverine. And he I played have, the hell out of him. Like, he did. Wrong, he was the perfect Wolverine. I I still look back Shockingly. on on all of the films that he was a part of, and we were just lucky that an actor existed in the time and space who fit that role so well mm-hmm. that it almost evolved beyond the Wolverine that that I loved from. And here is where I admit that. I love the X-Men, and I have read a lot of the X-Men comic books, but my first love was actually the cartoon. Um, yeah. Because I was very small when that came out. It just, mm-hmm. that was like my stories. It was so important to me what happened on that yep. show. Came on the perfect time every day. Had nice serialized, like, four or five episode arcs. Wonderful. Introduced all the major players. Uh, it was well produced, well yes. voice acted, like... That was a perfect storm. Like, I really don't know if X-Men would have the cultural purchase that it does without that cartoon. I don't I don't feel like it would. Um, for me, that was one of the first television shows that I remember feeling like it took me seriously as a viewer, even though I was a kid. Um, and mm-hmm. the other one was Batman the Animated Series, which had the same kind of vibe to it. Um, that it almost doesn't feel like it was meant 
for kids, even though it was marketed to kids. Um, and I think a lot of people get that same feeling with stuff like Avatar The Last Airbender now. Um, yeah. That it's just, I can't believe they made this for children. Right. Um, Avatar, Airbender, Steven Universe, like it's much more common now to see um, a, a child, a children's quote unquote oriented property delve into dark themes, difficult territory. Um, in the nineties, we saw more of that. I mean, you know, this is the rise of cartoon network, which, would, you know, push some of those boundaries and then would eventually destroy them with adult swim, just <laughs> throw out the craziest garbage that they could possibly come up with. Um, but, but yeah, no, the X-Men animated series, I, I don't know if it, it not all the elements of it hold up really well now. The animation is actually, it looks pretty bad now. But at the time, it was pretty top-notch. But it told really interesting and complicated X-Men stories and didn't hold your hand. Yeah. And and it was an exciting thing. Um, you know, it, it kicked off the toy lines. It, it you know, kept X-Men in the con- public consciousness long enough for that first film to get produced. And then it went mainstream. And, and everybody knew who Wolverine was, which was, was cool. Uh, nobody realized he was supposed to be like a five foot two ultra hairy <laughs> badass, but that's okay because as often happens, well, you know, Hugh Jackman's portrayal as Wolverine fed back into the comics and now Wolverine is, is you know, Hugh Jackman, <laughs> he's a little bit more Jackman-esque, let's say. Um, I love that. <clears throat> that they worked in a lot of the character traits from the cartoon into the film series with Wolverine in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, the moment I, we actually watched because of this episode, because of the new mutants, we went back and watched some of the other X-Men films. Cause you know, once you get me started mm-hmm. um, and we watched X2 last night, uh, which was just delightful. I hadn't watched that one in a long time. Yeah. And, I, would, uh, I would probably say that that's, well, that ranks very highly for me. It's It may not be my favorite anymore. It was for a long time. But yeah, it's X2 is really good. Um, But the scene where he calls the guy Bub in, in the kitchen just gets mm-hmm. me every time. Hearing yeah. Wolverine call someone Bub is just magical. He said that so much. <laughs> yes, I mean, that's part of the Wolverine vernacular at this point. But, you know, it's it's been a long journey starting with the cartoon and sort of this rise in popularity. And then you have this explosion with those X-Men movies. And then this general dying out of their popularity as people yeah. s- switched over to the Avengers. I mean, if we're being honest... Yeah, this, they this, got superseded by another superhero team. Yeah, it was this was the superhero team that everybody loved. No one gave a shit about Justice League. No one gave a shit about the Avengers. It was all about the X-Men in the early 2000s, and and now it's not. And I think this film, I think the New Mutants is is definitely indicative of what has happened to the X-Men franchise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have a, a much more sort of deep affection for the X-Men series than I do, but I, I have to also acknowledge that X-Men is pretty in, pretty deeply ingrained in, in my, you know, sort of growing up experience um i had read and collected comic books in a limited fashion uh throughout the 80s right basically i found a stash of comic books in my grandma's attic um 
little bit of a toss up about who they belonged to, whether they were my dads or my uncles. Nobody really they knew. They were definitely dads. Just saying. Um, yeah, dad. Dad said he read a lot more like DC Batman stuff, and this was a lot of Marvel, right? This was my those comic books were my introduction to X Men. There was an X Men twenty eight introduction of Banshee in there that I still have. Um, there was uh, a, a decent run of Iron Man comics, which is where I sort of fell in love with Iron Man. So I, I, I read comics. I knew comics uh, from a very young age, but it was not really until the X-Men 1 reboot with Chris Claremont and Jim Lee in mm. 1991 that I personally started collecting comics. And I was not alone. That comic sold millions of issues. I mean, like 3.5 million issues or something of that. But time. you were all about the Jim um, Lee for a while. Oh, Jim Lee was was the king. I mean, like analyzing that dude's art is probably where I began my own real journey at, at trying to do comic book style illustration. Now, he's the one who did the Spider-Man that I love, right? Does he have mm. a really cool Spider-Man suit or is that somebody else? I'm not good. I'm not Spider-Man. good with artists. <laughs> You're I the artist. Jim Lee did Spider-Man. But I know um, Chris Claremont really well because yeah. I do love him. Like he I don't know who am I thinking of? And stuff. I may just be thinking of a pinup of his from long ago. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he definitely like said, did you know, he did covers for Spider-Man and stuff, but he, I don't know if he ever did. I don't think run. he did a run of it, but I like yeah. his suit. I like the way he draws the Spider-Man suit, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, yeah, his his take on it's always good. Uh, I always associate um, Spider-Man with McFarlane because uh, he ran. He did he the, the big eyes. He, he created the Venom suit. Well, I don't know if he created it, but like his version of Venom is like the one that generally accepted as where people got into that character um you know the symbiote suit had come from secret wars but when they morphed it into venom he was the the guy who was working on the series at the time um he introduced this sort of hyper intricate webbing on spider-man's suit like it had always been kind of big and and easy to draw he went for this like hyper kinetic like that was his thing And it still is. I mean, if you even if you look at the stuff he posts on Instagram today, it's all just like this hyper detail. He mostly does inking these days. He doesn't do a ton of penciling anymore. But, um, but you know, Lee has has touched pretty much every Marvel character at one time or another. Um, but uh, but yeah. So I mean, Jim Lee, his his run on X Men is legendary. Uh, those books are beautifully drawn, beautifully illustrated. Basically, established the visual language of marvel comics for the 90s um because you had all of the 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 lookalikes you know the cooper brothers came in and they basically drew just like jim lee minor variations but still um well i mean this was back when we were giving levi's commercials to comic book artists it was just a wild time you could actually copy someone's style like that there's a really good series on uh, sci-fi wire where they sort of analyze the, it's really about the rise and fall of image, but you can't talk about the rise and fall of, well, not really fall of image. They're very popular, but that initial like image comics explosion, you can't really talk about it without talking about Marvel and DC at the time and the nature of the collector market, how everybody was buying collector stuff, you know, baseball cards, pogs, collector coins, (laughs) like, you know, everybody was buying collector stuff, expecting it to grow in value substantially, and then the market collapsed, and nobody knew what, what to do. 
you know, and comics got hit hard with that. And and that's when you see Marvel like going into near bankruptcy, struggling. We're going to sell off as many movie properties in the next year as we can because God damn it, we need money. You know, like it, it it's all interconnected. Um, and, and I would honestly say that we wouldn't have a lot of our early, the, a lot of the early Marvel movies that we've discussed on this podcast would not exist if not for that collapse of the collector market in the late nineties. Cause that is why Marvel started selling stuff as fast as they possibly could. They kind of went through the same, they went through the same growing pains that Disney did before their big shift into the massive company that they are now. The monopoly mm-hmm. that is Disney. And DC got absorbed by Warner Brothers around the same time. Um, you know, they already had a working relationship and Warner Brothers was just like, I'll just come over here, little DC comics. We'll just take you over and farm out all your intellectual property to shit. <clears throat> but, you know, we've, we have seen an interesting, we, the X-Men have been in the public consciousness for a long time now. And we've been able to chart rises and falls in, in the popularity of this type of fiction by the popularity of those characters. Um, Wolverine's a bit of an anomaly that he's been able to maintain. A lot of that does have to do with Hugh Jackman and his quality as a lead actor and performer. And how like, badly people want claws for hands. That's Yeah, I mean, Wolverine's just, he's just a compelling character. You can do cool things with him. Got claws, it's a neat. Lot of the X-Men, <laughs> a lot of the X-Men don't work alone. No. And, and that is part of the problem. Um, the nice thing about the Avengers is that they were all compiled from standalone character books. So they all kind of came with their own baggage and you could then flare them back out and have them go back to their own books. The X-Men were created as a team. They were built as a team and they were fleshed out as a team. You can't have a book that's devoted to Cyclops. It doesn't work. Right. He's not a good enough character. No, he is not. (laughs) You know, you can devote a one shot to him, right. Of him, you know, going on a little solo adventure or something, but he'll never be able to stand alone. (laughs) He he can get a a Cyclops-focused issue, you know, an episode of the week. Um, Wolverine, you know, is one of the rare ones that they've they've fleshed him out enough now that he can can run his own book. But, you know, if you read his collective backstory, it's batshit insane. I mean... Oh, yeah. You know, that's the nature of comic books. Once we do flesh out a character, we just take it way too far. Yeah, and I remember when that was happening, you know, because he was just the weird guy from Alpha Flight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's all Wolverine was forever, right? He was like the Canadian guy, the, you know, from the Canadian, t- you know, Ooh, I'm from the Canadian X-Men, eh? You know, like it was a joke. But, you know, he got into the right storylines and, and really it was around the time of that X-Men reboot that that he started exploding. Because he was he was a really central character, and then uh, I think you're also correct that his his sort of central focus, you know, it, being such a huge part of the, the television series, pushed him deeper and, and you know further into the comics, and we started seeing him more. Of course, um, you know, he was central to the Age of Apocalypse storyline, which yes. was you know kind of dominated the early '90s, like '94, '95, I think. And is some um, of my favorite. Yeah, that's a good series. That's one that I, you know, obviously they did a little bit of it in the the Apocalypse film, but not to the extent. And obviously Mr. Sinister had a big part to do with that. And we'll talk about him a little bit with this <laughs> film. But, um, but yeah, I mean, so we both care deeply about these properties. 
and these characters. Um, you know, the New Mutants was part of the X-Men explosion. Um, the characters have been around for a while. Uh, Marvel was looking to capitalize on the success of the X-Men. And so they started flaring it out into additional X-Men books. So we get uh, X-Force, which of course was pushed into existence by the crazy spindly feet of uh, Rob Liefeld. Because uh. um, if he draws feet, it's just going to be two lines angled down at the ground. <laughs> but extra crotch definition for everything. But lots of crotch definition, lots of shoulder pads. How many teeth are in pockets. a mouth, right? Like a billion? <laughs> yeah. 75, 30, 75, 100, 200, whatever. Um, but uh, that was designed to sort of bring together a new team of X-Men. We got the New Mutants, which was about the next crop of X-Men. Um, you know, there was a, a sort of significant spin out of all of these various characters that have been introduced in little ways, and they try to bring them all together and then, you know, build new teams and books out of them. Um, so that you had the X family of books that if you were an X-Men fan, you didn't just go to the uh, the newsstand and buy one X-Men comic. You bought 10 because um, you had to have the full story. And the New Mutants was certainly one of those. And it was designed to be a younger skewing uh, set of Marvel heroes that were sort of disconnected from some of the larger adventures. Right. They're kind of off doing their own thing. Uh, Claremont also did some writing on the New Mutants and produced the storyline that this film is based on, which is now known as the Demon Bear Saga. Um, and this is very loosely based on that. If you are a fan of the Demon Bear Saga, this movie will likely piss you off. Um, because the, well, I don't want to get too much into plot spoilers yet, but basically it, it makes some significant choices. It uses the framework of the Demon Bear, and that's basically it. Um, but that's okay. That's all right. It's still nice to see that kind of thing happen. Um, and and that storyline provides the the basis for this this film called The New Mutants. Um, we need to talk a little bit about before we get into to plot and and sort of the the disaster um, that this film was sort of doomed from the start. Um, so this film, as we mentioned before, is directed by Josh Boone, who at this point is probably best known for directing the film adaptation of The Fault in Our Stars, the now multi-trillion selling, you know, YA teen novel. Um, and the film itself did very well. So basically Fox had been looking to do a sort of younger skewing X-Men, right? Which you can tell in the mainline X-Men, they, they kept pushing the cast younger as much as they could, trying to get that, that non-neckbeard demographic, right? They're not, they don't care about me anymore. And um, so Boone pitched, uh, after cobbling together from various comic book sources, he pitched uh, a sort of young adult X-Men movie, a New Mutants movie. Uh, apparently the Demon Bear Saga was always the one he was interested in doing, and he envisioned it as a trilogy with these characters and other characters who would be introduced as we went along where we would explore not only different genres of horror, but different genres of film in general, right? So like post-apocalyptic film and, and et cetera. And, and so he had this big plan. He pitched it to Fox. Fox was down um, because they were looking for something like this anyway. And so they go and make it. This film was shot and completed in 2017. Yeah. Uh, early 2018. Uh, like done in the can. Um, then, or, or very close to it, very close to it. Like there were some pickups and reshoots that were scheduled to be done 
very normal, very typical stuff. They had screened the film. People liked it. Everything was good. Then Fox Disney acquisition begins. Um, so everything kind of gets put on hold. Fox doesn't know what to do with the movie. Disney isn't at all interested in the film. They don't care because they're going to do their own thing anyway. Uh, so the film kind of gets shelved. The reshoots never get done. Boone hands over the director's reins, says, this is the movie that I've got. This is the movie that I've, I was going to do. I'm happy with it. Wash my hands, walk away. He starts developing the Stand series for CBS All Access, which is currently airing. Um, and and he's done. Like He didn't have anything left to do on the film, so he left it behind. Film sits on a shelf for a year. Nothing happens with it. Uh, Disney, either because of a contractual arrangement with Fox or because they just had this movie that they needed to release to try and make a little bit of cash, decides that they want to put it out. So they call Boone back. He hasn't looked at the movie for a year, and they say, do you want to like put the finishing touches on it? Apparently some of the special effects weren't even done yet because um, all that stuff had been just shut down unceremoniously. So he comes back with uh, a different editor because his other editor's working on the stand. And they sort of put together what I can presume is the cut of the film that we saw. They finished up the special effects. He said they tweaked a few other things. Said he was happy with the final product. And they were done. Um, I've read some articles. There, there is a, a Vulture article about the sort of nature of this release for the film that um, goes into some detail. Obviously, it's a lot of he said, she said. Who knows what's really, what really happened. But a According to a few sources, Fox was never really happy with what Boone made. Uh, Boone set out to make a YA X-Men film, and he did that. But after the success of It in late 2017, when they released the first trailer, they really amped up the horror elements that were in the film. Because there is a, a horror component to this movie that's justified by several things that occur in it. Um... And they really amped those up, got a good response, told Boone, add more horror stuff, which he apparently resisted at every level and said, no, I don't want to add more horror stuff. There's plenty. So Fox kept trying to like get him to, to they would come bring people in, rewrite the script, do this. He would say no. <laughs> and they just went back and forth like that. But the quote that I, I loved in the article from Vulture was that apparently a Fox, Fox executive at some point, they were so displeased with what they had seen from Boone that he said, we'll just scrap the entire thing and shoot it all again. Even if it costs the exact same amount of money that we've spent, it'll still be cheaper than our most, than our cheapest X-Men movie. <laughs> so like there were executives at Fox who were so displeased with what this film was that they were willing to dump the entire thing shoot it all over again with different people, different director, different everything and, and just be okay with it. So Boone was happy with it. Fox was not sat on a shelf. And finally, after the Disney acquisition and merger is complete, Disney releases the film in late August, almost the, you know, F you it's September 
crowd. Maybe the maybe the next first week of September was busy with something else, so they didn't release it. Um, they released it in, into theaters to die. Uh, it was never supposed to find an audience. Disney didn't care about it. They didn't market it. And as a result, the film made $46 million worldwide. I think 26 of that coming from its stateside run on a roughly 70 to $80 million budget. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is a movie that was, was set up to fail pretty much from the start. Uh, despite the fact that it had some initial promise. Uh, so just with that context in mind, we begin. <laughs> so the, the basic rundown of the New Mutants is that after a devastating incident at her home reservation, a young girl named Danny Moonstone awakens at a strange facility operated by individuals who claim to have an understanding of mutant powers and this facility is set up and designed to help new mutants, people who have just acquired their abilities, learn to control those abilities and therefore enter into quote-unquote society. Um, over the course of the film, we discover quite a bit about each of the new mutants who are at the facility and, of course, how Danny's developing powers affect both herself and If that sounds like a thing that you would like to watch, um, then pause the podcast. Uh, I believe this is, if it is not on HBO Max already, it is going to be very soon. Uh, I don't know why it's going to show up on HBO Max as opposed to something like Disney+. Plus. Apparently it was on Amazon for a while. It was, yes. But it's uh, not so it's going to be on around. there anymore. There's too yes, many streaming services. Too many streaming services. I imagine eventually it, this being PG-13 will probably wind up on Disney+. Plus, um, But I don't know. There's people that say bitch a lot, and maybe Disney Plus doesn't doesn't allow that. I don't yeah, know. They do say some nasty words in this. There's some nasty words. Viewer words beware. Um, but in short, this is The Breakfast Club with Mutants. That's what this is. And it was designed to be that. Boone basically indicated that from the beginning, that that's kind of what he wanted to do. Um, and it's got some charm. Uh, it's not perfect. It is definitely a flawed project, but uh, my theory is that there is going to be a four in about 10 years, there's going to be a 14 year old who discovers this film on some future streaming service and it becomes their freaking jam. They're yeah. going to love it. I think and I know some young people right now who would, yeah, like honestly, in in three or four years, my my daughter will probably just think this is the coolest shit she's ever seen, um, and and she won't be wrong. But so again, if this is something you you would like to see, go check it out. Come on back because we're gonna break it down and talk extensively about the new mutants. So let's discuss the failure. As I mentioned already, uh, it's made zero dollars, but it also was a critical failure as well. Uh, it has a 34% on Rotten Tomatoes with 120 current reviews and a 56% audience score with only, and this it's a new enough film that they're doing the verified ratings thing, like you have to have verified that you've seen it, but only 2,600 audience score ratings, which is very low. 
for a, a, a major release. I mean, this thing released in 2,500 theaters, right? It's not like it just like snuck out. It was available and no one saw it. Again, being released in the middle of a pandemic when theaters are closed or basically people are being told not to go probably had something to do with that. But here we are. So a few of the reviews, um, again, most of the newer reviews, they, are, they all harp on the same things. So I just tried to pull some that had some interesting takes. Um, so first is Amy Nicholson writing for the New York Times. Uh, the original New Mutants comics debuted in 1983, the year Johnny Ramone howled for psychotherapy and its punkish, expressionistic pages wafted spray paint. Boone's version is set in the 90s and wallows in Gen X ennui. Um, so if you read the whole thing, I, I'm not a huge fan of, of Amy Nicholson. I think she generally is, is pretty on point. Um, but her whole thing with this is that the movie lacks sort of the, the punk spirit that defined these characters in the first place. It's, it's just more quiet and melancholy and contemplative, right? It sort of lacks the, you know, sort of screw you, Sex Pistols, you know, Johnny Rotten. Well, revolt punk is dead, of, so. Uh, it, 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 yeah, I mean, that was kind of my reaction, too. It's like, nope, nobody gives a shit about punk anymore. Sorry. Like, um, I mean, there are definitely people that do. I mean, I, I enjoy popping on a you know punk album from now and then, too. But uh, now and then, then as well. But nobody's screaming for the Ramones to come back into popular airwave. To rise from the dead. <laughs> That's right. Get up there. I'm sorry. I don't care if you're a zombie. Uh, but in any case, you know, the film does lack... It, it, it doesn't really have much of a, let's call it a driving spark, right? It, it is, it, it sort of languidly moves through its beats. And, and, and so I, I see where she's coming from. Um, Eamon Warman from Empire Magazine, uh, despite a game cast, the New Mutants horror elements aren't very scary. And as a superhero movie, it fails to truly excite a disappointing finale to Fox's X-Men franchise. Um, and this was the, this sentiment was very common is that, I mean, in a, in sort of a roundabout way, what this guy is saying is this movie is boring and yeah, kind of like given what the X-Men films have established as de rigueur and normal, this film doesn't really have any of those, right? Nobody, there, there are no fights between two mutants in cages, <laughs> Yeah. Right. Like we don't get that. Right. Nightcrawler's not going to fight Angel in a cage. Wolverine's not going to beat the hell out of somebody in a cage. Like this is not that movie. Uh, there there is action and there are action beats, but they are not the point of this yeah. movie. Um, and, and so if you go in with those expectations, those like giant blue light shooting into the sky, that's going to end the world. The stakes in this are much smaller, which honestly, I think is a good thing. It's the, I, I think it's what that. I like about it the most is that this is not an X-Men movie where, you know, Oscar Isaac and blue face paint is trying to rip the world apart. <laughs> like, and I'm okay with that because not every story has to be that. But if you want that out of an X-Men movie, this movie's not going to give that to you. Not at all. Um, you could call it, and this is Ed Potten from the Times UK. Uh, I will say of all the reviews that I read, most of the positive ones came out of the UK. They were much more down to vibe with this movie than U.S. critics were. Again, and, I, not, and that's very generalized statement there, but like there were several U.K. outlets that were like, this is actually okay. It's pretty good. 
Um, this one was not. Times UK, uh, you could call it one flew over the mutant's nest if it had an ounce of wit or personality. Um, which, again, pretty harsh, but not, not without its merit. Not without merit. Um, uh, I, I honestly think one of the reasons why this movie did see the light of day is because it has Anya Taylor-Joy in it, uh, who is just hot, hot, hot right now. Yeah. Blowing up with that queen. So is chess. Gambit. That's right. Chess, chess is, is cool chess now. Is huge. Um, and, and I that think that, that her, school. you know, sort of budding star power probably pushed it over the line for Disney. Yeah. But she is not good in this. No. Um, <laughs> her her Russian accent is real bad. Um, even like if you look at it as like a comically bad Russian accent, which they sort of do in the Deadpool movies with Colossus, you know, like they just play up like, oh, this is right, a bad accent. But it's, and, and traditionally his accent is supposed to be over the top ridiculous. And, right. And it, kind of cheesy. But hers is just bad. Right, it's it's not like bad cheesy like oh nudge nudge you know Russian it's like accent. We no, didn't it's hire like, a vocal coach. Bad. Yeah, like we we didn't have time to practice this dialect. Just do your um, best cartoony Russian accent. You'll be fine. Yeah, everyone can do Russian accent. Just leave out article, okay? <laughs> um, make it sound as stereotypical as possible. Right. Yeah, make it sound like the Bert Kreischer the machine bit. And then occasionally <laughs> just slip in and out of it. Uh, yeah, uh, that's the forget that so, it's happening. <laughs> but so, I mean, there there is definitely some some lacking in personality here. Uh, also in how the characters are presented. Right. We I, I was talking about this with my my wife earlier because she watched a bit of this with me as I was prepping for the podcast. And one of the things that I really loved about It Follows, right, it was like It Follows, while it is a horror film and it is mostly plot driven about, you know, girl escaping horrible thing. That movie knows when to slow down and just let teenagers have conversations about yeah. like things that teenagers would have conversations about. Uh mundane, boring, you know, what what's up with your mirror? Like why are you looking at it all the time? Like that kind of stuff. Why are you reading um, a book? Which, what's with the what's the deal? <laughs> just right, the like, stupid like stuff that we say. Yeah, like the the dumb, glib, stupid conversations that teenagers often have. But that gives that, you know, in this movie that is about, you know, speaking of it follows, that is about an invisible creature that's hunting you down at all times and you have to constantly be vigilant to stay you know, away from it. It grounds that film. It, it gives it a weight where all of those other crazy elements are bound together with things that you buy, which then enhances the experience of horror. This film needed that, right? We we needed the the just round table with these characters not talking about plot dependent things, and, and we get bits of it. There's little bursts of it, but not enough, right? Because we never really get to connect with the characters as a result. And I think that's what this review is hitting on: is that it just never gives time to develop these characters' personalities, and, and as a result, the film itself feels kind of personalityless and bland. Uh, last one I pulled uh, was Megan Navarro from Bloody Disgusting, uh, an outlet that I, I typically enjoy. The concept behind New Mutants is a solid, intriguing one that could have reinvented the familiar, or reinvigorated, excuse me, the familiar origin superhero story. Instead, Boone opts for genericism, ending the X-Men franchise with an angsty teen whimper. Um, and, and this one I felt was the most 
apt at describing the the big the large scale problems with this film Mm. it feels a bit generic it doesn't really put its stamp on anything which i think the nicholson review is also referencing it just kind of feels bland um and as a result it it doesn't really sort of push it in any interesting directions when it could have and it feels like it was designed to try and do that so the common problems uh from my cold reviews a lot of wasted potential especially with a strong cast that generally works well um many reviewers as i got deeper into like the non-top critics you know the nerds who read comic books a lot of people were pretty unhappy with their handling of the demon bear saga which okay um a lot of people said it was empty and devoid of personality that it it looked and felt kind of cheap um obviously most reviews mentioned the situation with the studio and how the studio was kind of setting it up to fail and many people just flat out said it was boring that not enough happened um so with all of that in mind, I think we can begin our, our discussion, our, our briefing, our rundown of the New Mutants. Um, did you have anything you wanted to add based on that analysis of the, the failure of the New Mutants? I, I think people should be a little bit nicer to the superhero movies that are doing something different. Agree. Because um, I was, I, I don't know. I, I'm gonna talk a lot about you know my distaste for the 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 MCU approach to superhero design because I feel like this film just actively threw it out the window, and I I like that. <laughs> I was happy about it. Yeah, I I think one thing we can't really. One thing we can't really overstate is that this is such a divergence from the normal X-Men movie that it's kind of shocking, right? Like, this is just not what you would expect going into an X-Men film. And and that alone, as somebody who has seen all of these movies and watches most of these, you know, superhero films in general, um, that I found genuinely exciting. So... I have like this weird, even though I, I, this is a problematic movie, like it's not a great film. I have this little soft space for it. Cause I'm like, but dude, look what it's trying to do. Yeah. Look at the type of story that it's trying to tell within the X-Men universe. Right. Again, there's no Magneto in this movie. There's no professor X in the wheelchair, although he's, he's hinted at strongly. He was supposed um, to be in it. I think uh, there, there are some places where it seems like a pickup or a reshoot might've, might have been appropriate but this film has a scale that i appreciate and a scale that ideally these large superhero franchise films should have space for right which is the smaller quieter stories you know comic books while the thing that gets them the attention is the bombast the crossover events the the world-altering craziness that they go through every 18 months or whatever that's gets them the press that gets them the coverage where they're like, Oh, we, we killed Spider-Man, you know, like (laughs) that kind of stuff is what gets their attention. But most of the, most of the nitty gritty of writing comic books is about small, intimate storylines, right? Or at least small, intimate moments inside of those larger storylines, right? Cause you can't have a major character death in every issue, right? Sometimes it's just Peter 
trying to hang out with Mary Jane and he keeps getting getting interrupted by an old man with wings. You know, Pizza it's time. like, you know, it's just, it, yeah, it, it's just, <laughs> what are you going to do? And so I really like that the core conceit for this film was to strip away all of that bombast, all of that excess and tell a small story about a small group of people, which is why Boone is probably perfect for this type of story. Um, at least, you know, on the surface, because he he's told this story before with Fault in Our Stars, you know, teenagers with problems thrown together in circumstances outside of their control. Um, go, right? And, <laughs> you know, the great thing is, is that, you know, the X-Men have always been a parable of pubescence, right? They have always been a parable of the transition from childhood into adulthood, the, the metaphor of figuring out who you are, which is why I think X-Men and X-Men stories resonate not only with, with people of that age, you know, 10 to 15, but also with um, people who have struggled with things like gender identity and people who have struggled with sexual identity because the X-Men are an open space where character i mean if you look at what an what an x what happens to an x-men man right okay i started as scott summers right but then this thing happened to me this change that's a part of who i am right it's an essential component of my biology and now i'm not scott summers anymore now i'm cyclops yeah right i've i've reestablished my identity as a human being with this new context and that's what every X-Men gets to go through, right? It's it's literally the fantasy where you get to sort of determine who you are and then nobody gives you shit about it. Wouldn't it be right? cool if at the end of puberty we all got special powers? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean it's 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 a it's a fantasy, but it also mirrors this very real experience that we all go through. And and while obviously many X-Men experience travails and problems and issues they still have this core concept that be, you can be different and still be, and still be good. Right. And, yeah. and it's, it's a really good message. And I think that's why the X-Men have persisted as a popular, you know, sort of group of public figures for a long time is that I think we can latch on to those experiences from a bunch of different angles and find ourselves in them, you know, just as, you know, I think somebody like Stephen King has built his career on writing about the outsider Right. Like all of his books at their core are about people who aren't like everybody else who exist on the fringes. And then we sort of understand why they're really valuable and important. Right. And and so I think the X-Men have occupied that space. And this, for me, is the first movie. In the X-Men franchise that just leans into that. Yeah. And this basically the thing that it has going on. Right. This isn't Storm being like be who you are, right? That's that's not what we're doing here, right? Like this is a much more complicated examination of what this transition looks like. And and I love it for that. Um, I don't think it's handled especially well. It's not, it's not very adeptly done and it certainly could have been done a lot better. But the simple fact that this exists is kind of cool. Um, yeah. You know, because we generally wouldn't get something like this in, in, genre film and you know of this type in general and definitely not from marvel so the film opens with and and i know this story has been told um 
over and over again. I think I, I watched a movie not too long ago that basically told the same story in it. Um, but the, the demon bear saga originates with a, a native American character, Danny Moonstone. Uh, she's meant to be a Cheyenne Indian. Uh, she lives on a reservation with her father, uh, William Lone Star, I think is his name. Um, and so we, we open with a voiceover narration describing the, the Native American belief that inside of every human is are two bears, right? One bear good, one bear evil, um, you know, one wanting to destroy, one wanting to protect and save, etc. And that, you know, the, the parable for life is that the bear that you let win is who you'll be kind of thing. So really right off the bat, just clearly and cleanly establishing that this is a film about identity, right? Who are you and, and what are you going to do with your life and what are you going to be? Um, so the, the titles are relatively swift. We don't get a lot of uh, introduction, you know, no, no really even director credits or anything like that. Uh, and we awaken with Danny being pulled out of bed by her father. Um, there's flames. It's, you know, there's noise. We can hear kind of growling in the background. They're getting tossed around inside of, I guess, what I can presume is a trailer. And, uh, and we get a, a really decent long tracking shot, right? We get a little bit of a wonder here uh, as Boone sort of pulls them out of their house and into a, a sort of snowy out of doors. I do want to mention that her father is played here by Adam Beach, um, who you may have seen in Suicide Squad for five seconds as Slipknot before he got his head blown off. Uh, but uh, I like Adam Beach. He's been around for a long time. He did a, a really, really great film uh, called Smoke Signals, uh, which is based on a really solid short story. And uh, just always good to see him, and he does a, a good job with his relatively you know, short part here. Uh, so Danny is pulled out of her her home and um, into the woods to escape something that is ravaging her reservation. Uh, her father is killed, and she is left alone running through the woods, pursued by something through the snow. She falls, hits her head, goes to sleep, and awakens somewhere else. Um, it's a pretty strong opening, all things considered. Yeah. Um, you know, even if you don't have any understanding of, of you know, this particular X-Men comic, this is a, a good opening. It throws you off balance. Um, we get a little bit of, you know, important background about the character. Because really, and this is one of the weaknesses of the film, and I'm curious to see what you think about it. The only thing it seems interested in revealing to us about these characters are their troubled origin stories. Um, so the, the writers were very interested in helping us understand what trauma brought each of these characters to this facility and, and sort of kicked off their change into mutants. But it doesn't really seem interested in going much deeper than that. Yeah. Right? It's, it's <clears throat> flashback vehicles. But So we, we sort of get the, the start of that with with Danny here. Um, the, uh, she awakens and uh, she awakens to uh, see a face staring down at her from a vent in the room that she's in. So somebody's in the vents. Um, 
and, and here's where the, the cast starts to get introduced. So the, again, one of the things I think is great about this film is that it has an incredibly small cast. There are like eight people in this movie <laughs> and, and that, that is it. And that is another thing that I absolutely love about it. I love a movie with a small cast. Um, and I'm thinking to some of the other films that we've talked about that have really small, really good sort of ensembles, like uh, like Session 9. That was just a good mix of yeah. a very small set of actors. And I get the same vibe from this. It's not as strong. Um, these actors are obviously not seasoned in the same way. No. But I still love that it's just a few people. Yeah, I mean, because the X-Men movies, especially, you know, the one that released before this one, uh, X-Men Apocalypse, has a sprawling cast, right? I mean, there are 25 X-Men in that movie and then, like, 15 bad guy X-Men. And, well, and, I you feel know. like part of the thing with the X-Men franchise is, look, it's so-and-so. Because I do, I do that with every single one of the X-Men movie. I'm probably the most annoying person to watch them with because I'm like, hey, look, that's, that's Banshee. I'll be like, oh, look, that's Jubilee right there sitting, <laughs> sitting in the classroom for, you know, a split second. On Two camera. seconds. That's Shadow yeah. Cat. You know, I pointed her out next too. Um, so I feel like they, they leaned so hard into that spot the X-Men game mm-hmm. that it, it ended up making it ten times harder for a film like this to peel back some of that cheesy stuff and try to just make a movie again. Because now people expect it. Right. I need to see my X-Men eye candy in order for this to be a real X-Men movie. What, do you want to see Speedball? Um, Yeah, dude. Gonna pick on Speedball. (laughs) And so the the limited nature of this cast, I think, is is a bold choice. Um, But ideally one that would have played out a bit better than it does. But I'm still very pleased that that's the, the choice that they've made. Uh, so Danny awakens in this facility with no memory of how she arrived there, um, which which is one of the central conceits of this. Nobody seems to remember exactly how they got there. It's hinted that um, one of the characters we're going to be introduced to, uh, Sunspot, uh, came there willingly or was sent there by his parents. But even that may not necessarily be true. Um, the the you know sort of cast that we're about to to meet, they're all kind of isolated from each other. And, and inherently distrustful of each other at this phase, which is, is a good place to start. Um, so we're very quickly introduced to the girl in the vents, uh, who we'll come to find out is, is Rain, uh, also known as Wolf Spain. Uh, she can turn to a wolf. I don't know if you guys know that. Uh, she can. <laughs> I really like Wolf Spain. It's, that's a character that I just always kind of like, so I was happy mm-hmm. in the movie. Yeah, yeah I always enjoyed the uh, the the Wolfsbane character, both in New Mutants, and I think she shows up in X-Factor later. Uh, like, she bounced around all those sort of side X-Books quite a bit. Yeah. Um, Danny is disoriented. She's upset. She is attached to the bed by a monitor, can't uh, can't leave. So she... I, I like this scene. Uh, again, it's it's very small, but it tells us a bit about Danny that she's not just going to lay there and take it. She's going to get up. She's going to try and do something. She's going to try and change her situation, figure out what's going on, which I think is a, a you know, fairly you know straightforward piece of visual storytelling, but important for the character at this point because we really haven't seen her do much yet. Um, 
but then we are introduced to uh, the doctor, right? Um, and the doctor is played by Alice, Alice Braga. Braga. Um, who, I love her. Yes, I, I have to say I'm 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 a bit of a fan of Alice Braga. She, I would imagine a lot of people probably know her from Predators. She played an Israeli uh, defense force operative in in that particular Predator film. Um, or I am was, legend. She was very was good. Uh, she's done quite a bit at this point. Um, but she plays Dr. Reyes, who is the sort of mysterious purveyor of this facility and really the only person that they ever see. There are no other people yeah, at this she seems facility. She's just, be just running Dr. it herself. Reyes, and she's both psychotherapist, uh, medical doctor. We don't really know. Yeah, she um, says she she's a doctor, but we don't know what kind of doctor. Her, her lapel. That's a, if you're a if you're a careful X Man watcher, yeah. you probably recognize the logo. But we'll we'll get there. Um, it, it's intimated pretty much right from the beginning that this is an this is an X Men facility, right? Did you get that impression? Yes. They were kind of trying to build that up. She talks a lot about like you know my benefactor. <laughs> Well, and and uh, they as a way of identifying mutants, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, and of course the way did, that the, uh, the hospital, I I did, I did, and I half expected to see Professor X at some point, or at least have him mentioned, until it was very clear. I mean, it is fairly clear early on that it's not that. I mean, you think that for a minute, but if you're paying yeah. attention, um, <laughs> so you know they set it up with the hospital sort of sort of drawing some some really easy comparisons to, uh, you know, Xavier's school, um, just in terms of, I don't know, sort of the old character and charm of it. I think that they purposely made them sort of look like they could be in keeping with the same vibe. So it throws the audience off a little bit, um, but that I don't think that lasts very long. Not for me, anyway. No, no, it's it's a premise that gets dismissed, but I, I appreciated the effort or at least the desire to make it seem like this is like a, an X-Men training facility, because that's what she's told, basically, that this is a facility for new mutants, ding, 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 you know, there's your title, um, to sort of figure out their powers in a safe place so that they can then re-enter society and, and not you know cause harm or destruction or whatever. <clears throat> And that she's here to, to help these mutants make that transition. Um, so, you know, Braga is good at playing this sort of reserved figure that we can't quite read at this play phase of the game. She seems nice enough, but definitely there's, there's something else going on behind the scenes. She's not really loving, she's not really warm, but she seems at the very least concerned uh, about Danny and the other um, clients. Yes. Um, so it, it is a medical facility. This was shot at, uh, I believe it's called Medfield Hospital. It's, a, it's an abandoned hospital. It's where they shot Shutter Island um, or <laughs> chunks of it anyway. Didn't mean to laugh. <laughs> What's that? I didn't mean to laugh. It's just can't believe that was a Scorsese film. I know, right? And one that did very, very well. Um, so Danny is sort of taken back to her her room, she's got clothes there and, and basically is told you like, you know, you're going to be here for a bit. Um, 
but the the emphasis is that you know this is a safe place you don't have to be scared but there are lots of questions to be asked right how did she get here how did they identify her powers and that they had been triggered how did they find her after that occurred you know there's there's lots of questions and i think we're legitimately supposed to sort of ask them but then not dwell on them which again could cause a problem for some people uh, so the next major scene is Danny's first group therapy session. So Boone, as I said, sort of set out to make a YA film. That was what he was interested in doing. And so this is, I mean, we could call it The Breakfast Mutants. Uh, we could call it uh, The Mutant Club. Uh, whatever you want to, whatever label you want to put on it, this is is Boone's attempt to inject a little bit of John Hughesification into the X-Men universe. And how successful do you feel he was in attempting to do so? What do you think? Um, well, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, I don't know if the word success is really fair because there's a lot that works and there's Mm -hmm. stuff that doesn't. (laughs) I don't know. Um, You first. I, I, wanted, I want to know what you think. I want to know what you think. Oh, sure. Um, I... Okay, so I'll tell a little bit of myself here. I have a, a comic book story that I've written. Uh, or I wrote it a long time ago now. Um, that is all about a superhero support group. Or a, a support group for superheroes who have lost their powers through various means and now have to deal with being powerless. And so they, they have a, a support group that they get together and try and reconcile the shit. Yeah. And uh, so I have always been fascinated by the idea of these powerful superheroic beings feeling so vulnerable that they would actually gain something from a group therapy session. I, I just, I find it an endlessly interesting concept to try and, and mull about. And so, I love that component of it. I think Boone is, is working very hard to sort of compress these characters into these sort of John Hughesian archetypes. Um, you know, like Sunspots, like a Brazilian jock. And then Anna Taylor Joy's like, you know, the bitchy upperclassman. And, you know, the kid from Stranger Things is... <laughs> You know, Stranger Things boy <laughs> is Judd Nelson or Judd Hirsch, whatever, whatever, whoever he was at Berks. I can't remember his name. I don't um, know. I don't know why, but I thought of the therapy, the little group meeting from Wreck It Ralph. Yeah, it, <laughs> that's really that that's really part of it. Is that if you're going to write a group therapy scene, you should know how group therapy is conducted, and I really don't think they do. No. Um, because you don't just go around the room and like ask random questions of people and, and see what happens. Like, I guess you can, but that's not typically you want to have, yeah, typically you want to have like a more specific objective in mind. Um, but really all, all the first group therapy scene is establishing is that Anya Taylor joys, uh, Ileana Rasputin is mean, terrible person. <laughs> like that's really all it is. And we do get a little bit of a window into Rain's backstory which again the only thing the film seems interested in revealing about each of these characters not their wants their hopes their wishes their desires for the future is is their tragic backstories and so rain sort of indicates that um i I guess let's let's hit the cast you know everybody's here so we have danny uh who her uh 
her, her eventual mutant name is Mirage, is here, and, and her powers are as yet unknown, right? She has abilities, that's been identified somehow, but what that ability actually does is still a question mark. We have Rain, who again is Wolfsbane, so she has the ability to transform into several stages of animal transformation. You know, she kind of can do like a half human, half wolf form, but she can also transform fully into a wolf, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, we have Ileana Rasputin, also known as Magic, um, who main thing she can do is conjure a sword from like a spirit plane or a soul plane or something. Uh, in this one, they gave her like some cool armor on her arm that's sort of Colossus reminiscent. Um, I really that... liked that tie-in. I thought that was neat. <laughs> yeah, no, it looks cool and it's a neat effect. It's one of the better effects in the movie, honestly, is, is her like magic arm. Uh, but that that is the thing we should mention is Ileana Rasputin is, is Colossus's little sister, uh, which they they don't make any of those connections in this film. You know, she never says, you know, my big brother's an X Man or anything like that. But um, maybe but, it would have uh, been cool is, if they did. We could have yeah, like about I her. I imagine there's a cut of this film somewhere where she says that because um, they do discuss the X Men later on. Like there there are questions about like, oh, are we going to become X Men someday? You know that kind of thing, uh, which is is kind of neat. Um, and then we have, uh, Sunspot, uh, I can't remember his name uh, off the top of my head. Bobby. Uh, Bobby DeCosta. Bobby DeCosta. Yep, that's right. Bobby. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, Sunspot can, uh, generate, you know, solar flares basically in his body, manipulates solar energy. He gets real hot. He's, he's the human torch. He's just another one of those. It's, and then... I mean, yeah. And then we've got Sammy Guthrie, also known as Cannonball. Cannonball. Uh, one of the many superheroes who can transform the lower half of their body into a jet flame, I guess. It's um, the coolest power ever. It's it's pretty neat. Cannonball's an okay character. He's not bad. But so here this he's take on him is interesting. It, it's interesting. Um, again, they it feels like they built his character out to fit with the teen trope archetypes that they were were desperate to sort of capitalize on more so than than you know being honest to the original character, which is fine. It's whatever you know. Nobody cares. Um, but he. Uh, but his origin is 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 pretty is close to the comics. You know, he was a young boy working in a coal mine, um, and uh, he gets in in this version. You know, I guess it's a bit of a spoiler. Um, he's working in the coal mine. His powers activate, and he winds up killing a bunch of people, causing a cave in, presumably, including his own father. In, in the original, he actually saves somebody, right? Like, that, he discovers his powers by saving one of the workers in the coal mine. Um, we, can't have an, we can't have a happy story here. It has to be uh, terrible. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. That would be ridiculous. Uh, now, I mean, he does eventually become good friends in the New Mutant series with Sunspots. I mean, that's accurate. That's starting to happen here, kind of. We see a lot of them hanging out. But, uh, so he, you know, again, tragic backstory, tragic backstory, tragic backstory. Like, everybody had to have a tragic backstory. (laughs) And 
and again, that's fine, but it would have been interesting maybe if Sam was a bit more stable, right? Uh, not punching himself to death in the bathroom with his, his cannonball arms yeah. because he's so angry about his past, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, th- that angst, there is going to be an audience that thrives on and responds very powerfully to that angst amongst these characters. So I, I get why it's there. I was more again, upset about the accent. Yeah, what is that? Um, like I get the the high Kentucky accent, like that's fine, um, but, but it would just disappear. Something it's really inconsistent, <laughs> and sometimes it's super high and nasal. Sometimes it's in the back of the throat. It's again, I and you know, as as a person who has watched a bunch of Wired videos from that guy that teaches people how to do oh, isn't he voices, lovely? <laughs> uh, he's just the best. Uh, I know that this is really hard, right? Yeah. Like doing an accent that is not your accent well and hitting it perfectly requires basically two things time and practice like that's it i almost always just feel bad for the actors because they're the ones who get saddled with the performance when it's really someone didn't spend the money for a good coach yeah i mean and and here's the thing charlie heaton stranger things boy he's from england (laughs) right he's from leeds like he did a good job all things considered yeah given that his default accent is very far from a Kentucky accent. Uh, I'm going to give him a little bit of a pass. Yeah. But if if you are from the Midwest and you know how people from Kentucky sound, you you're not going to be pleased with yeah. his performance in this film. Uh, and that's you know again a minor niggle. But so the 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 first group therapy scene, we're kind of going around. Danny feels isolated, alone. Uh, Magic very quickly establishes, tries to establish dominance and say, you know, hey, you know, I'm kind of in charge here. I do what I want. And then Dr. Reyes asks her to sort of show Danny around, right? Show her the ropes. Obviously attempting to help them bond. Uh, I've got to say that I love the location. The location just works. Uh, I, I think movies that are bound and tied to specific locations and use those locations effectively are inherently made better by doing so. And this is a film that really benefits from being shot at this, like, abandoned hospital. Uh, they fixed it up. You know, it's not like Session 9 falling apart or anything. Like, they, it looks like it's supposed to be an operational facility, but it's empty. The hallways are clear. There's there's yeah. nothing around. It's it's just a building. And it's it's surprisingly effective as, as a locale for this. Uh, I think it reinforces a lot of the isolation, the, the separation that these, these people feel. Um, and it's got a little bit of future tech thrown into. I guess we'll mention real quick that Boone originally intended to have this be set in the 90s. Uh, that yeah. was kind of his initial visual goal. And that is super obvious to me Yeah. watching it. Like, I straight up thought it was supposed to be a 90s period piece when I, when I finished it the first time. Um, it does have its fair amount of, like, future X-Men, you know, tech, security cameras, blah, blah, blah. But the style of dress the overall decor it feels like 1993 1994 it really does and i honestly think that would have been fine like i think this would work really well as a 90s period piece um but it's not and and that's fine but on her uh, her tour of the facility uh, Magic convinces Danny that uh, if she just runs fast enough, she can probably 
she can probably make it to the next town over. Dr. Reyes uh, tells them that the, the nearest town is 20 miles away, so there's no point in trying to run. Uh, of course, Danny, feeling isolated and alone, she wants to escape. She hauls ass for the borders of the facility and then sp- runs smack dab into some kind of energy wall, right? She finds out that this is not just a facility that she can leave whenever she wants. She is indeed trapped here by some unseen force. Uh, we eventually find out that this is a field erected by Dr. Reyes herself, that her mutant yes. ability is, is creating shields and barriers. Uh, which is kind of cool, right? It's, it's neat that, you know, the person you would put in your facility to house a bunch of mutants and keep them under control would be somebody who can erect impenetrable barriers that they can't get away, uh, regardless of what their powers are. Uh, so that's pretty cool. She would have to be an incredibly powerful mutant to maintain that, though. Yeah, especially while also holding things like group therapy sessions. Yeah, because I'm thinking to, like, Professor X, and he's one of the most powerful mutants in the entire X-Men canon, and he still has to concentrate to, like, do his thing. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, man, how how advanced are your mutant powers that you can just put a force field over an entire campus like that? <laughs> She's very powerful. She's just really, really good at what she do. You don't think about it so much. Don't <laughs> yeah, worry just about don't, it. Don't worry about it. That's the and and you can tell that's the character they invented for the film. She has no analog in the the X Men universe because no mutant can do what she does in this movie, and that's yeah. that's okay. Um, so Danny is, is trapped. She makes that realization. Um, we do get to see a dog running behind her as she's running towards the thing, which we find out later is rain. Uh, and of course in her, I'm a giant, terrible person, uh, magic, you know, makes fun of her, calls her Pocahontas, which God. Eh, that's gross. Um, and intentionally so, I mean, you're not supposed to agree with her or anything. Yeah, you're supposed to hate her pretty hard. And and they do try their best to circle back around to having you like her again once you understand a bit more about her. However, it's weak, the the reveals yeah. that we get for that character, and I don't think they make up for some of the really, really racist things that she says. Yeah, like, as a character, it's one of those things, it's, it's all about scale, right? Like, in Star Wars, you kind of know that Kylo Ren's done for when he kills his dad. Like yeah. It's like, oh, you can't come back. This isn't going to end well for him. And and they kind of go the same place with uh, with magic, where she's just not, she's she's just too bad um, here. And not in like a snarky, endearing way, just in the like, wow, you're terrible. The only way to balance it was if we might have learned more about her. Yes, and not just her quote-unquote tragic backstory TM. Yeah, but, but more. <laughs> yeah, like, who are you, and, and what are your goals, and why do you care about this, and why are you treating this person so badly? Um, so then we get, you know, there are some leaps in this film that are not necessarily justified by what we know about the characters at the, at the time that they make these decisions. So Danny is... She had said once before that she was she would rather just be with her people, right? Like, I, I don't want to continue living if my people are dead, right? So if my dad's dead and everybody else from my reservation is dead, then it would be better if I'm just dead with them. And so yeah. here she gets to, in the next scene, she gets to test that out. She goes to the chapel, the, the church facility on the grounds, climbs to the top of the steeple, and then, you know, is, is 
basically preparing to jump off and kill herself, or at least that's what we're supposed to believe. Um, and of course it is Rain, uh, Wolfsbane, who stops her from doing that. And honestly, I, I kind of like this scene. It's, again, there's stakes to it. I mean, she's about to do something potentially deadly. Um, I, I will go ahead and say I'm, I'm not a Macy Williams fan, like, at all. Um, I, I, I don't think I know. Game of Thrones. Um, I, see, I've never seen Game of Thrones. I saw good. Well, I saw one episode. That's enough. You're fine. <laughs> I mean... Um, I, I tapped out after season four, I think. I followed it up until that point. Maybe a bit of season five, but it was just so rapidly going downhill that I, I couldn't be bothered to care, and then I was justified in that lack of care by how terrible it, it all kind of came down. But um, she's best known for that. She has done other things. She seems to be a fine actress, but I've, I've never gravitated towards her and said, like, wow, oh, my God. Um but she's okay here. Uh, again, her Scottish accent is not great. Um, it's it's fine, mostly. Uh, I did watch a YouTube video from a, a Scotsman who reviewed this, and he was like, it's total shit. <laughs> like, she yeah. needed to stop. It was really frustrating listening to her make this terrible Scottish accent. That's um, how I felt about the Kentucky thing. Right. You know, it's like, the accents you know, you can pick up pretty quickly. It hurts when people get it wrong. Um, but I, I like this scene, and I like the relationship that is that is starting to be built here. Uh, because there are not a ton of relationships that we get to see built in this movie. It's, it's not... Even though it is operating on this really small scale, it doesn't necessarily... It doesn't really work at creating small moments between its characters. And that is its problem is we need more of character building. The only relationship that gets built out in this film is the relationship between Rain and Danny, uh, which eventually turns into a, a lesbian relationship, an open yeah. one, uh, which is good. Like, I, I that was all, glad That stuff was handled really well. Yes, I like their relationship. I like where it goes. I like how it's handled. Um But it doesn't really serve the story in any significant way. The fact that they fall in love and and start developing a relationship isn't... It, it doesn't really create anything for the characters other than a bond that allows them to kind of sort of make it through the end of the film, right? That they're, they're there for each other. Yeah. Um, which I, I wanted, again, just more of the, the development of the characters, more of their relationships, seeing their... their you know, sort of friendship and, and in this case, budding relationship deepen in meaningful ways. Um, unfortunately, most of the relationship development time is spent with Rain delivering exposition about the facility and the people, you know, and because Danny now feels comfortable with her, she becomes that vehicle rather than them being able to have conversations about themselves or their goals or you know, any of the things that you would actually talk about if you were in a relationship with somebody. Um, we, you know, we get a little cafeteria walkthrough where we see everybody kind of isolated off. Ileana likes to draw on herself. I love how we okay, get that. You know. We get that almost monologue -y 
style conversation where it's like, how come no one else in the cafeteria can hear you openly talking about Right, them? like you're straight up talking about him as you walk by and nobody's pissed off that you're talking about them. That seems unrealistic and unlikely. Um, so, you know, again, it's one of those things you, you get a little and then you get a little taken away with this movie, right? Like you get a little thing and you're like, oh, cool, right? Relationship between these two characters, great. Not really executed. Not really doing anything. But, you know, it is doing, from a story function, it's helping Danny feel more comfortable so that she can start sort of meshing with the rest of the group, which we know has to be a thing that happens uh, over the course of the film. So then we get the first night. Um, And I, I do like that Boone, at least Boone has these characters doing the sort of mundane things that you would expect them to do if they were in a facility like this and didn't have anybody taking care of shit. Um, cause there, there aren't orderlies there. There are janitors like it's, it's just them. So, yeah. you know, we get a picture of Bobby DaCosta doing the dishes and then him and Sam are doing their laundry cause nobody else is going to do it for them. But you know, it, it provides us with some interesting moments here. So they're they're talking a bit about their again their their tragic backstories. Uh, it's clearly established that Bobby comes from a family with wealth, and then Sam is left alone in the laundromat as Danny falls asleep. So one of the things the film falls back on, and I imagine this was a choice made later to clearly identify the surveillance nature of or, or the surveilled nature of this facility. Um, is that apparently the the cameras in the facility can monitor for mutant activity somehow? Somehow, that's a thing. You and can do so that. When Danny falls asleep, uh, the the system detects some kind of thing happening, and at the same time, we're shown Sam responding to a a you know thumping sound in one of the dryers. Which then leads to a flashback of his tragic backstory, <laughs> because what else would you flash back to but your, you know, your tragic backstory moment? Um, in general, I like these scenes because um, what you know again, Danny's power, what she's discovering, is that she has the ability to manifest your deepest, darkest fears. Right, that her mutant ability is to create a mirage ding, 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 um, of the thing that you're afraid of the most. So Sam flashes back to the moment in the mine, or, or presumably the moment right before in the mine, he blew up his first time as Cannonball and ended up either causing some kind of cave-in uh, or just straight up murdering his own father. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, this scene is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I kind of like that the walls aren't like real mine walls. They look like a weird hybrid between the brick in the hallway that he's actually standing in and, you know, the mine. This is, is one of the, the first uh, horror scenes in the film. Uh, again, one of the things that happened uh, to this movie is that it was sort of unfairly pushed into horror film territory when it was never really trying to be that. Um, and so this, these are the things that Fox wanted seemingly amped up in the movie, these, these kind of moments. 
so Sam has an encounter with the dryer. It, it causes his powers to go off, and he, he sort of slams into one of the other dryers in the facility and, and uh, you know, struggles to deal with what he's seen. <laughs> but after that moment where it's clearly identified for us that Dr. Reyes is watching all these things happen. And observing closely. So she has something to do. She's not here just to help them, right? So if you hadn't picked up on the fact that she's probably not trustworthy, this is the moment where you realize, oh, there's something else going on. Uh, once again, Rain and Danny are, are thrown into a scene together. Uh, this time a shower scene, which, again, I... I I kind of like the vulnerability of it, that they're, they're, they feel comfortable with each other. Uh, I have a feeling it was written just so they could show the W brand on Rain's back, since that's it's clearly the established that she wears that like got. big sweaters and stuff. Sorry, what were you saying? Well, that's the feeling that I got. It seemed like that was almost intentional because they needed to get this out there, but they didn't want to make the brand really visible because then they would have to do more with makeup all the time and make sure that it's consistent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so they have to put build that a, shower scene in. <laughs> not going to put her in a sweet sleeveless tee. <laughs> um, so I guess it's shower time for everybody because right after, because um, that conversation really is about Wolfsbane's brand, uh, where she got it. She doesn't want to tell Danny about it. You know, it's part of my tragic backstory. <laughs> I can't tell. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, Danny's left alone. I, I really, I, I wanted, you know, scenes in showers. I, I like that it's not sexy at all. Like they're not trying to amp that up. Uh, it's really a, a, more a scene about being vulnerable, being exposed. Um, you know, they reference again that the facility's all sort of being surveilled, but the bathrooms don't seem to have that kind of surveillance in them. Um, so I really was hoping for a moment that would be more raw, right? Um, where these two characters might have a, a sort of deeper conversation, but it, it doesn't really go that way. Uh, so we get another group therapy scene. This time they're all practicing meditation. Um, and, and you know, Ileana is not into it. Rain seems game. Most people are kind of mocking it and making fun, but, you know, okay, you know, it, it doesn't really do much for us, but it, it establishes that these people are being thrown into situations together and, and you know, being asked to congeal. Um, and then we cut to Buffy the Vampire Slayer on TV. Uh, I really like that. Yeah, it, it it's a nice little Whedon nudge-nudge because, of course, it's, it's the two lesbian characters in that show, so Rain is very interested it was uh, a it was a groundbreaking moment on TV, you know. It big, was big reveal. Yeah. Um, so I liked that they had that in there, but as soon as I saw it, you know, it was fairly obvious that like, oh, they are going to get together. I can't wait for that to happen. Yeah, it's it's a bit of you know visual foreshadowing that you know these two characters are going to move beyond just being buds, uh, which is is good. Right? I, I zero issues with that. Uh, my issues are that it, it's not enough. <laughs> yeah, they more. just, there wasn't enough of a, they just weren't in enough scenes together. Yeah, not where they're just like trying to establish their relationship and be friends. Like it's just not happening. Um, 
in that way, unfortunately. But this scene quickly devolves into a direct confrontation between uh, Danny and Ileana. Right? Danny has, has apparently somehow maybe the demon bear inside of her has, has given her the courage to stand up to Ileana, and uh, you know, so they they fight back and forth. Uh, we are, are finally shown uh, Ileana has Lockheed. Uh, who is a, a character in the comics? In this one, it's a it's a, a puppet. Um, what what did what did you think of of Lockheed in this this particular one? Uh, I feel like there were more scenes that we did not get to see that would have explained the significance of Lockheed the Dragon puppet. Yeah. Um, when I finally saw Lockheed at the end of the movie, and he was you know come to life i had a oh you're a real boy moment right. but but it just i feel like i should have seen that happen earlier or i should have known something i just feel like i i feel like that is on an editing room floor somewhere yeah i i don't know uh i guess it's also mentioned it's worth noticing worth noting excuse me that lockheed is generally associated with kitty pride not magic um again minutia I, yeah i mean i don't nitpick about that stuff because it's comic books and quite frankly you can do whatever you want but my thing is just that's a very that's a very bold thing to put in the movie and then not explain it <laughs> yeah uh it's again very interesting choice i mean in essence what we see is she she talk it's a puppet uh, initially and she talks to it, has a talk, you know, earlier she had said, oh, yeah, I don't like her either, like, you know, with Danny. Um, and we see that same sort of, you know, relationship here. Danny steals Lockheed, which infuriates Ileana, uh, Ileana and they, they get into a, a physical altercation. Danny gets a couple of things, you know, a couple of shots. And then, then really this is an excuse to finally reveal Ileana and Dr. Rea's abilities. So Ileana's stuff, as we mentioned before, it looks cool. Like it's it's neat, right? So she has a, a myriad of abilities, um, but here what we see is the the conjuring of the soul sword, and then um, you know, kind of a cool armored colossus esque arm. And uh, she goes to to hit Danny with it, presumably with the intent to murder her, because <clears throat> I can't imagine that that would have gone well. And, uh, and Dr. Reyes comes in and, and puts up a protective shield to save Danny's life. And then they are both assigned to solitary. So this facility is, is really interesting. Um, it's at one time a hospital, obviously meant to be you know, a place to acquire therapy, to, to get help. But yet they also have these like solitary isolation cells. Their rooms themselves are straight up cells. Um, so it, it's just, it's a really interesting facility, but one that, again, if you have any questions still about whether or not this is good or bad, this type of stuff should be firmly sort of pushing you into, yeah, this is real bad territory. Yeah. Uh, but we don't have time to wallow in these moments or, you know, think about the implications of being in solitary confinement in a facility where you are ostensibly meant to be helped because we have to learn about Ileana's tragic backstory. Um, 
And in this case, it is that she was abused by, I'm guessing, like, members of the Russian mob. It's kind of what they look like, you know, silk shirts and stuff. Um, I don't know why I associate yeah, silk the... shirts with the Russian mob. <laughs> but, uh, sorry, silk shirt manufacturers. I'm sure, you're, I'm sure your products are very valuable and nice. Also, sorry, Russian mob. You probably yeah. feel cooler than that. Um, but in essence when she was a a young girl uh, it it appears as if she was abused somewhat routinely um, by by nefarious folks and now she sees them in her dreams or or in her, her waking moments she sees them as these masked men with these sort of like crazy um it's almost like a smiley face kind of thing. Um, yeah. But but extended and kind of grotesque and a little bit like ghost face from Scream. Um, but they're super elongated, right? They look like a Doug Jones, you know, prosthetic character, like super long arms, super long legs. Uh, because all this happened. Kind of a Slender Man young. inspiring. Thing. Sure. Yeah, that's yeah. actually, a, that's probably the most appropriate. They're, they're like baby Slender Men. Teeth. Yeah, lots of teeth. Um, but then we flash back to Danny, who again is attempting to go to sleep. And then she... The film is not especially clear whether she's remembering these things, she's dreaming these things. I think we're supposed to interpret these as memories that she's sort of pushed out of her mind. Um, but she's laying back on the ground, you know, as we saw her right after the, the sort of open of the film... She looks up at the sky. Blood is sort of falling down on her, almost like ash. And then she is approached by a, a you know, a red-eyed creature in the darkness, um, which of course is the the demon bear. Uh, she awakens covered in blood, which is again cool. It's a neat moment. Um, a little scary. A little scary. A little bit of a little bit of a goose to you there. Like just give me a little bit of that that goose. Right underneath your chin, just ooh, right that kind of deal. Wake up, because <clears throat> um, the audience and... might be falling asleep. That's right. Not a lot's happening. Keep up. Um, but you know, we we sort of see that perhaps Danny is not allowing herself to remember the full events of that experience. The. This is one of the the issues in general with this film is that we've got all these independent storylines that it wants to start developing. You know, what's Danny doing? What's what's Ileana doing? You know, we we want to see all these characters individually, and so we start getting all these little vignettes of them on their own, right? Little things they're doing on their own, which in a longer film, I think would have been okay, yeah. but. That we're in the second act now, right? Like we are clearly in the second act of this film where we need to be like deepening our understanding of the characters. We need to, uh, you know, be clarifying our central conflicts and all of that stuff is happening. But now all the characters are broken up and in the, and instead of being together, they're kind of off doing their own thing. And, and I think it just really, this is when all these characters should have started coming together. We, you know, Maybe Ileana's the last one, you know, the hardest nut to crack or whatever you want to call it. But we really should have started seeing them together. But the film seems much more interested in sort of separating them out so they can get more horror stuff. 
And yeah. I just, I really feel like that's, it, it may actually be the, the worst mistake the film makes. Um, because the unification of the characters that we see in the third act of the film is really not earned. Where they should be working to earn it here. The so relationship shift with all of them confused me where they're all friends now and i yeah, did it just kind not, of happens i yeah. didn't feel that up until that moment and so i i don't know i just didn't buy it so we while danny is recovering from her you know memory of the demon bear uh we follow rain to confession uh so it's established that rain is a catholic um her, her tragic backstory involves the church. So she goes to confession. She says, hey, it's been a week. And there's nobody in the confessional. Right Again, there's nobody else at this facility. right? So she's doing confession to no one. But as she is sitting there, someone does appear. And it is the, the priest that caused her traumatic experience. And so we, we get, an, again, a little horror beat. She's kind of banging the doors around. The that part was actually changing. quite scary. I thought that was a it very was. nice, nice moment. And and I guess of all of the horror moments, I feel like I'd fight to leave that one in. Mm -hmm. um, but it was about the only one that really worked for me. <laughs> yeah, I... I like the horror moments in this film right like i think they're all pretty good they're executed well you know it's not like ghost rider where like mark stephen johnson has just like no idea to film a scary scene um they keep it simple it's it's rattled doors and sound effects you know there's no big bombast in any of the scares it's it's really straightforward and we're building to something with rain at least right because this this does have a payoff for you know what rain is is going through so I, I i like it i'm not saying the scene is bad but i i want to see instead of seeing all the little characters off dealing with their own shit i want to see them all dealing with their shit together yeah right? like that's kind of what needs to be happening and and that's it's sort of what we get in the next scene but again they're they're sort of trying too hard because they they sneak out, and I forget the premise. I think they figured out that Dr. Reyes like, sleeps from time to time, and they can kind of like bum around and do what they want. So they go to one of the other buildings, and they like hook up a lie detector. And it's like, you know, you don't need this conceit <laughs> to, to get these characters to talk about stuff. In The Breakfast um, Club, they all smoked drugs and then chatted. That was right. what happened. Like, you can make it as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah, this this whole pretense of, like, oh, tell the truth or we'll know is, is kind of ridiculous. Um, so, like, I guess Sunspot's up first, right? And, and then he just flakes immediately because they ask him a question. He's like, I'm not answering that shit. And then, you know, he leaves. And then... You know, basically it becomes, again, I don't like that most of these scenes seem written 
to just reveal a piece of expository information about the character's tragic backstory. Like that's, yeah. that's literally all they're doing here is they, they wrote one backstory for each character and then they just picked scenes where they could reveal a little piece of that backstory until the whole you know picture was complete. And, and we don't even really get them down. interacting after that. I mean, like I'm, I'm thinking of the breakfast club comparison, you know, where they're all sitting in that big circle talking. There are some very deep reveals there. Um, you know, some pretty earth shattering things come to light. But then also we have the part where Molly Ringwald can stick her lip liner between her boobs and that can happen in the same scene. And that's, I think that's sort of the, the thing that maybe we don't always realize about those teenage conversations is that they can go from tragic backstory to look what I can do with my lip liner in the space of about five minutes. Like that is entirely possible. I've witnessed right. it. And you know, it's still artificial. Like Hughes was the master of this is dialogue that, this this is confirm this is conversation that would never actually happen in the real world. But it but feels was, like it could. It feels like it could exactly, and that's what this movie is failing at. None of this dialogue feels like it would ever happen if you actually yeah. put these people in a room together and let them talk. Like because after you know they play with this whole like you know basically like you know tell the truth would you you know would you rather kind of shit they dispense with that and then Danny goes into this incredibly long. Let me tell you about my bear necklace thing, and you know, where she just reiterates hard, the story from the beginning. Yeah. Given how hard she was made fun of by Ileana, I'm sort of wondering why she chose to offer this information up to everybody. Right. Especially you know, when most of it was repeating stuff we already knew. Yeah, and Ileana just keeps asking, like, what's your power? Right? Like, that's all she cares about. What's your power? What's your power? And of course, Danny doesn't know at this point in the story. Uh, Sam was hooked up to the machine as well, and he kind of revealed another little piece of his tragic backstory. And then we get the Demon Bear story, which again is fine, but I really love that it's holds on Danny for most of them, but then I really love that it, it shifts to other characters a couple of times and literally all they're doing is just staring at the ground, looking uncomfortable. <laughs> they're not engaged. They just don't know what to say. So it's like, this is really intense and, <laughs> and I don't know what to do. This is awkward. And yeah, it's, it's like one of those, like, why is she telling us this? I didn't know. This is not what we were interested in. Um, you know, you so said and, your dad made it. Yeah. <laughs> it's close. And, I, I just, I really feel like as an audience, we're kind of doing the same thing. Like this isn't, you know, uh. but really we're building to another slow reveal or a subtle reveal of tragic backstory. <laughs> and in this case, uh, Ileana is, uh, tells us that she killed a bunch of guys. Um, presumably the ones who were mean to her or had been mean to her at some point in the past, I'm sure it was fully justified. I have no issues with it. Um, but she, she gloats, you know, I, I've killed 18 men <laughs> one by one by one. It's like, Oh, did you do it multiples at a time? Or did you just do it one by one? I don't know. Um, but so Dr. Reyes is upset the next day that they, uh, they kind of went around and, and did whatever they wanted. 
And I struggle with some of these group therapy scenes because they seem pointless. I know there are things happening. Like in this one, Sam asks a question about like, like what if he, he raises the question, like what if, what if we don't want to be here? Right? Like that's really the question being posed. You know, what if I don't want to be a part of this facility? What if I don't want to do this? Cause they, they even don't know why they're here. Right. They, there's a conversation a little bit later about like, Oh wait, what if it's related to the X-Men? But, yeah, like it, it it's it, I think this is where the film again really starts to struggle because I don't think it knows what it wants these scenes to accomplish and they don't seem to really build to anything significant. Uh Sam gets upset says you're not listening, you don't you don't really care about me. How do I even know if you want to help me? You know, all of these things that are reasonable questions to ask, but I don't know why it comes now. And it doesn't seem to really result in anything because the next thing is Dr. Reyes going to sleep and them deciding that they're going to get up to shenanigans, which when this, when this scene started, like when they were all like, Hey, now we can go do what we want. I was like, Oh, cool. Now I'm finally going to get like some development between these characters and see them like actually like, talk about stuff and open up and, you know, engage in some fun activities together. And no. and what do we get? Uh, we get rain and Danny dancing with a tambourine. Yeah. We get Bobby and Sam pushing each other in a wheelchair and making each other fall over. It was, it, it's exactly lifted out of a John Hughes movie, but then it wasn't uh -huh. given the right kind of heartfelt, expository dialogue scenes afterward to sort of balance that out. So the montage just didn't work. Yeah. It's, it's sort of what you typically see when, well, this is, this is JJ Abrams making star Wars, right? You understand the mechanical pieces of what made that thing work and you can reassemble them into a reasonable facsimile, but you don't actually get what made them work in the first place, right? Yeah. Like the heart that powered them and, and gave them something beyond just here is the, the amalgamation of scenes. Um, so yes, this one should have been this conversation in, in terms of this movie, this conversation should have been a significant turning point in my opinion for the characters. That's what should have been done here. They have a moment to themselves. They've had a little bit of freedom. They're having fun. They're bonding for the first time. Now we can really open up to each other and we can talk about things that really matter. And what do they talk about? Are we going to be X-Men someday? And tragic backstories. And tragic backstories. Um, and then it's over. Like, that's it. <laughs> like, the scene with them is over. And now it's just down to... Danny and Rain, which again, fine, totally okay, really interested in their relationship. That's a good thing. But I don't know. It, it just really feels like Boone 
either either wasn't able to fully execute this this true dream of having a young adult story being told through the filter of the X-Men or or he really just didn't know how to structure it and and give it the cathartic beats that you need to see as these characters grow together um and again this is where my disappointment for this film is is really palpable because honestly it's going to it's going to pick up in about 10 15 minutes and and it'll be fine but this is the most squandered pieces of potential as as these conversations could could have really done more than just solidify tragic backstories and that's yeah. really all we're doing uh tragic backstory number 1 tragic backstory number 2 and I'm sorry, trauma is not character. No. Right? It's is it a component? Is it a jumping off point? Yes. Sure. But trauma is not who I am. And this movie has has made the obvious decision that your trauma is what defines you. <clears throat> and if it had done more with it or shown you know how it changed it, these people. I don't even really right. get how it how it affected them in the long run other than just making them mean like Ileana is just mean or sad yeah or sad um but there are more complex emotions that go with any kind of trauma than just i am mean or i am sad yeah and i i kind of like you know sam here in, in the scene with bobby he's like oh i really wish that i could just forgive myself and and move on right and and so like that seems like okay that's an interesting thread let's let's run with that you know maybe bobby says yeah we we do need to learn to forgive ourselves but then he can't really go on cuz he's struggling to forgive himself for something he's done in the past and and they they bond and say you know maybe we should both try maybe this is important for us to try we need to give it a try you know and and then like it becomes this cathartic moment for the two of them but you know bobby gets like cheesed off and leaves and and again it, it's half measures right it's like you almost got there and then you just backed away, right? You just turned the other direction. Like, Oh, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to deal with real feelings. No, no, no. (laughs) Whereas again, if we're looking at the John Hughes model for a young adult film, that's what makes them so priceless is that they deal with real feelings, right? Even if the conversations are hyper, uh, you know, over the top and, and not unrealistic, the emotions that they're expressing, the emotions they're dealing with. Like, you know, think about Ferris Bueller, you know, when, when Cameron is talking about his relationship with his father, no teenager is going to be able to articulate those feelings in that fashion. Right. They're just not going to be able to do it because that, but that's the magic of movies is they're doing it for us. That's why every teenager connected with, with, uh, with Alan Ruck in that moment, any, any kid who had parents like that, which we did, um, you connect with him because that's exactly what you wanted to say, but you don't have the capacity to say it. Right. You didn't think of it that way, but that character is expressing an emotion that you can go, yes, I, I feel that. I know that. And, these and that's characters, what this movie doesn't have. Yeah, they're not doing that. I, I, didn't, I didn't get any sense that these were people that I could connect with. And, and you know, we were talking about the magic of the X-Men story and how it there are so many opportunities for you to connect with a mutant as they are going through all of this 
but it doesn't just have to be a tragedy. It doesn't just have to be sadness. Um, you know, there's always a mutant with a tragic backstory, but not all of them. Yeah, totally. I mean, and, and if anything, it's it's sort of essential to the X-Men, you know, sort of thematic universe at this point that you have some tragic loss. You know, Scott Summers, you know, rips his school apart, Havoc, uh, you know, kills somebody. You know, like this has been a part of these types of stories for a long time, and that's that's fine, but this movie misses the mark in that that's really all we get from these characters. Again, it's, it's yeah. obviously trying to focus on Danny and rain. We get a little bit more with them, especially their, their sort of burgeoning relationship. And, you know, as, as you know, this scene goes on, we wind up with Danny and rain outside laying in the graveyard, looking up at, I, I guess it's supposed to be the stars it's, filtered through the shield. Is that, that what it is? Something it's like either that. that or it's rain that is hitting the shield. I couldn't really tell. <laughs> I wasn't yeah, sure what was happening there. And I'm sure if I rewatched it, they, they would explain it and, and I would be fine. But in essence, they're stargazing. I mean, it's that's what the scene is. It was a very um, cliche moment. It's it is really without. cliched. And I again, I was really sad because this relationship at this point in the movie, my especially my first watch through this relationship is like the thing that's keeping me going through this 20 minute section of the movie where it's like, I want to see where these characters go because everybody else is kind of boring and I don't really care. And then it ended up being this like really kind of cheesy moment that was not very exciting or interesting. Um, it's tender and it's kind of quiet and sweet you know, but so I, just I, I don't want to make it, it seem like it's terrible. I feel What's like that? we had we had gotten several moments like that with with Danny and Rain that I don't know if we needed this one. Yeah, it's it's really again, it's it's not a lot of traction. You know, they they become more physically affectionate, which is fine, but we're not really seeing their relationship deepen. I, I think even one of the things that Danny says, she's like, "You're just so nice to me," and it's like, yeah. <laughs> Okay. That's the foundation of every healthy relationship. That's, that's, you're so nice to me. You're so nice to me. It's like, oh, well, thank you. All right. That's what I like about you. <laughs> I and, like that you're nice. And it's like, you know, is that it? You know, is is there something wild about her that you're drawn to? Is there a wildness inside you that seems like her? You know, like all this, these these places you could have gone with the dialogue and, and with the expression of these emotions. And it, it again, just doesn't get there um but we're also intercutting with bobby who is is seemingly having a little like interaction with iliana in the pool i do not even know why the part in the pool needed to happen other than they needed to push him in the pool when he catches flame early <laughs> yeah. later in the scene yeah it's, this is a pretty obvious thing so again uh bobby costa is sunspot he manifests solar energy he is the human torch it's he's very he's very hot Right. And so we we he is strangely the one that we have not had much indication of his tragic backstory. Right. We know his parents are rich. He was sent here for a cure of some kind. And then we saw him looking on his phone at a picture of him and a young woman. But now, you know, we're we're getting more. And this is really horrific. 
it is. This is another good horror beat. It's executed well. He's in the pool, seemingly with Ileana, and then Ileana disappears. Uh, and then a creepy Japanese horror movie style burned up hand reaches up and strokes his back and uh, then sets a flame and starts chasing him. And we find out that his his tragic backstory is he was uh, getting busy, I guess we'll say, with his girlfriend and he flamed on and he oops. burned her alive. Oops. Uh, yeah major oops and so he is reconciling that i it really <laughs> more than anything this scene felt like uh uh event horizon right <laughs> it sort of felt at peace with that um didn't they drug the doctor that's what they did so they could have yes. their fun yeah, they, they drugged her they spiked her, her tea or whatever that's right so when they find Bobby, he's he's flamed on pretty significantly. He's not burning through the tile, which is good. It's high quality tile. Yeah. Um, but then they just sort of unceremoniously toss him in the pool while he's flamed on to uh, turn him off. I don't think that's how that works. Um, no. But not not really. You get the nice reveal where you know he's basically burned away like the entirety of water in the pool. So again, it's it's a decent horror beat. The special effect, the sunspot special effects, although they're relatively you know straightforward, I think looked good. Um, and and then we have this huge conflict where he's accusing Ileana of, of trying to kill him, and we saw on the security cameras that that's uh, Ileana was was not even there. So he was being manipulated by something. And then, you know, again, we're just kind of swirling as he's like, you know, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I'm going through. And then she says, I'm your doctor. You can trust me. And, uh, you know, again, we're getting these these cool moments, but they're not really doing anything for the story. Right. We're just sort of circling the same ground. We don't trust you. You don't you're not doing what we want. You know, what are we going to do about it kind of thing? Um. So then um, we, we start really sort of digging a bit more back into the plot. So unfortunately, most of our character development in this story is, is kind of over. <laughs> um, not completely, but there's Mostly. not a lot more that we find out about these characters. Yeah. Um, which is really sad. Like, again, that should be the focus of what this film is doing, but it, it sort of very quickly loses steam at doing so. Uh, so Dr. Reyes begins experimenting on Danny. There, she needs to identify what Danny's powers are. So she starts sort of working with her. She's using drugs. She's monitoring, doing a bunch of different stuff. And, and while she's working with Danny, things start happening around the facility. Uh, so Rain is taking another shower. And she is attacked by the priest that initially mauled her. And we see that his face is all torn up. So we know that Rain's tragic backstory is not only was she abused by this priest who called her a witch and, and obviously treated her horrendously, uh, she killed him, right? Yeah. She turned into a wolf and she she tore him apart. It's, it, again, 
feels a little bit like American Werewolf in London. Kind of feels mm. like they're going for that vibe. A little bit of that prosthetic makeup, face torn apart kind of thing. Mm. Um, again, it's a good horror beat. It's executed well. It's acted well. We finally get to see another person <laughs> in the movie um, as the priest. And, and it's it's a good moment. Again, there there are nice horror slash scare beats in this that, that are effectively done. And this is another one. Then we flash over to Ileana. She opens the door of solitary where she's been put because she spiked the tea and she sees one of the smiley faced men painted on the wall. And so I thought you know, this, I don't know when the smiley faced men thing started happening in the movie, it kind of lost me. It, it it's the it's by far the strangest visual. I, again, one of the things I love about this is that it's it's pretty grounded, right? It's it's pretty. The world feels real, you know, for the most part. Not not a hundred percent, you know. It's still an X Men movie. There's, there's mutants and stuff, but the facility, the the space that we are occupying is is really like cut and dry. And now things start going in a much weirder direction. Uh, it's justified uh, by what's going on with Danny and her sort of figuring out what she can do. But yeah, the smiley face men is, is probably this, the, the most left of center element of this section of the film. Yeah. Uh, so rain gets attacked and branded again by the priest, which shouldn't be possible because, you know, not real. But, you know, uh, we're, we're learning that Danny's manifestations have consequence. They're not just, you know, phantoms. And for some reason, it's Ileana that's able to figure out that it's Danny, uh, which Lockheed tells her. So I, I guess it's possible that Lockheed being an extra dimensional dragon is. But then the audience knows nothing about Lockheed. So right. it makes no sense. Yeah, it's it's just her taking a puppet and saying it's her, <laughs> uh, kind of thing, and we we don't really understand the the implications of that for a while. Um, I I struggle with why the characters are at all surprised by this revelation, and and a couple seem genuinely surprised by it. There are only five people in this place. <laughs> If the if this weird stuff started happening when Danny showed up, then by process of elimination, just simple Occam's razor type stuff, it's reasonable to assume that Danny has this ability. Um and and, and you can sort of reliably get it. Oh, Danny's asleep, and I'm, you know, seeing priests trying to brand me in the shower. Oh, well, maybe Danny sleeping is part of the <laughs> issue. Um, but everybody sort of seems taken aback, like, what? No. It can't be. And so so we we finally sort of get a, a full rendition of what magic can do, right? The the cool armor arm is is just one piece. But she can portal, she can transfer to an alternate dimension that she can move through. That's where Lockheed is find out eventually Which is also kind of barely explained in the film yeah and i mean it's not that x-men powers have to be sort of rigorously examined 
but magic's powers in particular, especially the way they're choosing to represent them in this movie. Would help. It might've been cool when we were having some of those exposition scenes, when everybody's just sitting around in a circle talking that magic would be like, Oh, you know, I can go to this other dimension and I can just like, you know, do whatever, (laughs) you know, aside from clearly establishing her as the most powerful or at least potentially the most powerful mutant in the place by being able to do that. It would definitely be a thing that a teenage girl would brag about to a bunch of people trying to figure out what their powers are. Right? Yeah. Like without question, she would be like, Oh yeah, you know, I can totally like portal to another dimension. I'm like, whatever. Um, so, I mean, I, that's the kind of conversations that would lead to interesting moments between these characters before we need to start seeing these things in action. And this movie doesn't seem interested or capable of sort of using those tools efficiently or effectively. Um, so we see Ileana's like special dimension, then she's knocked out and, and you know, taken out of the equation by Dr. Reyes because she's obviously a danger to Danny at the very least. Uh, I guess it's worth mentioning that Danny gets out of the situation by somehow envisioning. She has a vision of Ileana's fear and then she makes her face turn into one of the creepy mask guys, which yeah. breaks her concentration enough that, you know, Dr. Reyes can knock her up with the sleepy juice. <laughs> um, but then the movie takes probably its most interesting turn. Um, Dr. Reyes is in her little surveillance booth. And she receives a message from the Essex Corporation, which again, if you're a a careful student of the X-Men, not even that careful a student, if we're being honest, um, and you're looking at some of the iconography in the facility, the little pin that Dr. Reyes wears on her, her coat, you know, if you thought that perhaps this was a, a feeding facility for the school for gifted mutants or for gifted children, um, it is not. It is a facility run by the Essex Corporation. Which I've been waiting for this payoff. Yeah. Waiting. Like, this is a cool moment because the X-Men movies, like many superhero movies, have failed in exploiting their best villains. The, the X-Men movies, especially the Singer X-Men movies, it's always Magneto, right? It's just, it's been <laughs> Magneto in every single one of those movies from the beginning. It may not start as Magneto. There may be somebody other than Magneto, but by the end of that fucking movie, Magneto's the bad guy. He's there. Congratulations. Um, and that's okay. Like the, you know, sort of setting it up that it's Charles Xavier versus Magneto forever is, is an interesting character thing. And I'll watch Michael Fassbender paint a wall and then watch that wall's paint dry. Like I will observe, I will watch that film and enjoy it. Um, but one of the least utilized villains in all of X-Men lore, especially in, in media outside of the comics, the the TV show, the, the animated movie or the animated show did a little bit with him. That was okay. Is Mr. Sinister. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Mr. Sinister is always trying to exploit mutant powers. He's always trying to use mutants to accomplish his goals, right? He's the 
the mastermind behind the scenes, and he runs Essex Corporation. So this is this is a major reveal. Like this is a big deal, and this movie just sort of blows right through it and doesn't do anything with it. And I, I think some of it's a conscious choice. I mean, by the time that Boone came back to finish this movie. There was supposed to be a post-credit sequence, supposedly, where we he wanted the next film to take place in Brazil, focusing on Bobby Costa, at least to start. And Antonio Banderas was gonna play his dad. And so oh, apparently they, cool. they had a, a shot a shoot planned, had Antonio Banderas you know, signed, he was gonna come in, he was gonna do this, they were gonna do a stinger, and then Mr. Sinister was gonna be revealed in that stinger, played by John Hamm. And this would have, at least for this series, like I have no, I doubt very seriously that they would have done anything in the mainline X-Men universe if Fox had been allowed to continue. But it is genuinely thrilling to me to think that if we had gotten more of these, that Mr. Sinister would have been at the the sort of center of the New Mutants storyline. It would have been awesome. That would have been amazing. But it's, it's pretty obvious that when Boone came back to finish the movie, he knew that this movie was never going to get a sequel. Never going to happen. Because, you know, Marvel's going to do its own thing. And and so the reshoot and the, the post-credit stinger was scrapped. You know, didn't even bother doing them. And as a result, like, all of this, this little bit of world building that they're doing to establish the next, you know, potential major villain in the X-Men universe just falls totally flat and it is such a bummer dude such a bummer um and it's 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 just what should have been like the big reveal the big moment oh this is actually mr sinister trying to manipulate these kids into you know the next mutant killers it just falls on deaf ears right yeah it, it makes me sad and that sadness is pervasive and deep in my soul. Um, so many opportunities. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, there, there's potential here, and it's, it's just being squandered. But it, the thing that she gets, that uh, Alice Braga's character, Dr. Reyes, gets, is the notification to terminate Danny. And this was the, the, more, the most bewildering choice for me. Um, obviously, Danny's powers are complicated and growing and obviously dangerous but i really find it difficult to believe that mr sinister would issue a kill order for someone with power of that magnitude yeah um again it's their universe they can do what they want but it but it doesn't it doesn't really land for me uh maybe isolate maybe contain um you know something but just straight kill I don't know, but that this is really what motivates the the next sort of phase of the film. Um, so Danny's starting to figure out, as all of them probably should have at this point, that this is not a good place to be. Um, unfortunately, she's about to be killed. So what difference does it make? <laughs> uh, but so Dr. Reyes has prepared the um, you know the, the 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 killing brew the murder concoction. Um, and 
I guess we're knowing the Buffy the Vampire Slayer is playing on the TV again. We get another one of those. Uh, yeah, I saw in on one of the shelves that they had all of the season box sets. Yeah, it, it's, it's a, that's a choice. I mean, you know, it's, it's a good choice, but... It's just interesting that, that, that it being set in the 90s, yet they made the choice to put DVD box sets on there. Right. Interesting. Interesting. I guess they're just really going for the whole teen slash horror thing, you know. But really, this this next sequence, we don't even have to spend a ton of time on because as Danny goes under to receive her medicine, um, basically the facility starts going nuts and uh, Ileana starts seeing her childhood bedroom. The doors start melting. Um, it's it's really it's just an much. excuse to kind of go hog wild with the horror freakish bits. Um, and then, gosh darn it, Anya Taylor-Joy, she, she really tries to act real hard in this sequence. She's like, I, I buried this. I, no, I, uh, you know, and, and it's just, it's, it doesn't really work, but it, it's okay. Um, but now they're going to get chased by spindly slender men with, uh, big, big teeth. Uh, that just didn't land for me. I felt like that was too silly. Yeah, this is the weakest horror beat in the film. What I what is obviously being pitched is, I, I guess, the most effective, or what they're hoping to be the most effective, ends up being the sort of cheesiest. Um, I I will not I will say that the design of the the Slenderman characters is it's good. I mean, it's creepy, um, but I don't think this is a movie where you need people running down a hallway from a scary monster. Yeah, not like that anyway. Um, I thought the more, you know, personal connections and, and it is a personal connection for Ileana. I, I, I do want to make that clear. Um, but I, I feel like it would have been better if the horror was more like closely connected to the characters themselves and what's going on. Cause you know, Sam, you know, he's not being chased by, you know, half blown up miners, right you know is he they're just all being chased by the the freaky slenderman guys and i'm like well why does sam care you know that's not his fear yeah um apart from just you know in general i suppose (laughs) nobody likes sharp teeth like that um but you know we do get a couple of you know action beats because honestly that's what this movie is lacking and i can imagine most of the executives at fox reacting negatively to this film for that alone is there's really no action in this movie uh you know we're a good we've we've had a good 30 minutes here where the most exciting thing was seeing a flaming guy get pushed into a pool (laughs) right like that was it it's like oh what happened a flaming guy got pushed into a pool that was pretty scary you guys um and that's a problem for an x-men movie unless you are pulling us along with the force of your character interactions and the movie's not really doing that either um so that's why i think the second act is is it's really vignette and it's really really unsatisfying you know, fortunately now we're, you know, we're moving into final ground territory where things are a bit more interesting. Um, but so Dr. Reyes has this long speech and, and Braga does a good job delivering it where she's talking about like my mom was a veterinarian and, you know, sometimes you just have to put the rabbit dog down and, and 
while the that whole comparison like you're like a rabid dog is kind of gross it's it's an, an interesting moment but uh wolfsbane uh, in her sort of like half form shows up and is able to uh rescue Tear danny by up. frankly shredding alice braga like it, just, that was brutal yeah that's I, I wish it had been shot a little bit better because they they do a little bit of speed ratcheting on it to make it appear more aggressive. Um, I, I, and I, whereas I, I kind of wish that they had just shot it a bit more efficiently to to really you know kind of drive home how desperately Rain is is hurting is hurting her. Like these are not surface wounds. Like she's legitimately uh, ripping her to shreds, uh, which I think is is a really interesting and. and is really cool. I, I I enjoyed that moment. And then uh, Cannonball, you know, again, this all feels a little bit paint by the numbers. Cannonball and Sunspot are now activating their powers. Uh, Cannonball uses his to escape from the smiley face men. Ileana jumps into her teleport land so that she can get out. And Sunspot's trying to kick down a door with his fire powers. <laughs> it's like can't you like generate fire blast from your hands and melt the door why are you pounding on it yeah, I, I might burn off my pants again I don't yeah want we do don't that. want that which you know he's learning about his powers but um but iliana shows back up with her soul sword and gets a cool little moment she you know sort of reappears and she's chopping them all up and it's cool and boone is is obviously not an action director because most of the stuff doesn't look awesome. It's fine. It's for an X-Men movie. I'd say it's pretty on par because I'm, and I know you'll disagree with me and that's fine. The action in most of the X-Men movies is pretty subpar um, because it generally devolves into a guy who's floating and a whole bunch of CG is happening around him. And then people who are looking at the camera with their hands raised and straining like they're going to the bathroom and then just intercutting those shots with sound effects. That's most X-Men like final confrontations. Uh, it made sense when Magneto was uh, Gandalf and yes. you know, you're not going to have Gandalf like punching anybody out anytime soon, or at least you probably shouldn't. But uh you know, even when they got into like the the Fassbender stuff, it's still just like CG happening around me kind of thing. So I, I'm always happy to see X Men doing cool X Men things, and this movie has that, and and it's it's okay. But I I certainly see room here where some of this stuff could have been padded out with slightly more exciting moments. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, as as the the resident sort of X Men appreciator right because you made it all the way through x-men apocalypse it took me I did. four days to watch that movie i watched I, it i watched it twice i it took I me four days it. to get through it because i kept falling asleep in the last hour <laughs> like I'd, I'd start it over because i'd be like i don't want to miss anything i feel like i missed some things and then i get to roughly the same point in the film and i just fall asleep again well there are moments like, where that damn. movie just kind of dies in the yard and it's like what happened right. the movie seems to have ground to a halt yeah and and this one has some similar issues but i think it's again there's enough there's some things happening here that are really cool but so now has come the time that all of our disparate 
friends who have hated each other, now they've all bonded together as a single fighting force um, for no reason other yeah. than the fact that they are now in mortal danger. So again, this has the potential to be the moment that they become one, right? That they're they're putting aside their differences, they've they've bonded at a deeper level, they're bypassing those issues and now we can work together to fight this this entity, you know, the the final confrontation. But they're just buddies now. Really apropos of nothing. Nothing that we've seen Right? They've kind of bonded together because they knew Danny was in danger, but that's not really a reason to join each other. right? Not like this. Um, so they have their final confrontation with Dr. Reyes where she bubbles them all and they're, you know, she's, I guess, suffocating them, basically. And, uh, and, she, and again, I cannot express how absolutely jacked up Alice Braga is <laughs> from Wolfsbane. Her face is shredded, her eyes all bloody. It's it's, it's yeah. good. Like it, it's it's effective. Like it's a good effect. Um, I, and again, I, I wish the the original attack had been shot a little bit more efficiently so that we could see some of these things, you know, as they occurred. But. Um, so she taunts the kids a little bit, you know, talks about secrets and lies and obedience and all these other like little lessons that she's been trying to impart to them. But as Danny is, is sort of being suffocated and killed her, I guess we can say subconscious revolts. And we see the arrival in the last moments of her life of the demon bear. Um, So the, uh, I'll go ahead and say, I think the demon bear effect is really good. Uh, I, I think too. it actually looks excellent. Um, it's not the demon bear from the comics. Right? The demon bear from the comics, like, talked and, like, yeah. taunted people and, like, made fun of people and stuff. Like, it was supposed to sort of just be Danny's id, right? Like, that's what the story is. It's like, this is the bad part of her, the part that, you know, hopefully won't dominate her existence. In this one, it's just a pissed off bear. Like that's really it. But the effect is cool. I love the eyes. Uh, the eyes are really solid. Uh, you know, the, the actual effect of the bear itself is, is quite good. But so the demon bear shows up and just murders Dr. Reyes. She's dead now. Um, and, and now our, our five intrepid new mutants have to defeat Danny's inner demon basically. And so this final confrontation is, is good. Um, I'm not going to say it's great. Um, <laughs> what did you think? So they're, they're saying, you know, the demon bears out there magic, you know, gets at her soul sword. She's going to go fight. And, Again, at this point, up until this point in the story, like Anna Taylor Joy has been nothing but like egregiously awful, terrible, 100% of the time, no questions asked. And then the movie gives her a hero moment, possibly the, the most significant hero moment, because they're like, oh, don't go fight that bear. It'll kill you. It's magic. And she turns and she's like, so am I. 
<laughs> that was. <clears throat> I hated it. I hated yeah. it because I knew that that was her name, mm-hmm. and I knew as soon as he said it that that was that, that would be, be the response. response mm-hmm. And I wanted to throw up. But then I also remember I knew that. At no point in the film do they say that her name is magic. Ever. We don't actually have the equally cringy moment where it's like, what's your real name? Like we get in X2, which is just as stupid. Yeah. So I'm willing to let it slide just based on the fact that the majority of people watching this are not going to say, oh, it's a pun on her name. Oh, it's a magic. Um, but it made me want, it It made my skin just crawl away from my body. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious what you thought about that. It's, again, it's whatever. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But, um, yeah, I was, I was really hoping that we wouldn't necessarily devolve into these, you know, sort of like hammy things. Although there is something to be said for an X-Men movie with a, a heaping helping of schlock, right? It's like, ha ha, I get it. Uh, and so our, our final confrontation, I don't even know if it's really worth breaking down. They, they fight the bear. Like, that's, that's it. They, they legitimately just fight the bear. Uh, everybody has to use their powers. Uh, Roberto finally, I guess I'll say woman's up. And turns himself into a, a sunspot ball of flame, which is like, I don't know why you waited so long. I mean, like, it's really fine. It's just, yeah, just use your powers, man. And, you know, we do get to see the, uh, you know, the each each new mutant utilize their their power. Um, There's some weird stuff with magic. Uh, It looked like they were doing a bit of of speed work as she would do like her little flips and jumps that I'll admit looks a little strange. But, you know, most of the action in this sequence is fine. The emotional core of it is supposed to be Rain connecting with Danny and getting Danny to to finally sort of confront this part of her so that she can master it rather than be, you know, sort of taken by it. And so we get a, you know, Danny's like in a snowy field, the same basic field she was in when, you know, her um, reservation was destroyed. Because I guess that's the big reveal is that she killed them all, right? Like, Danny's tragic backstory is that she is the one fully responsible for the death of not just her father, but all of the members of her reservation. Because while she was asleep, the demon bear came out and it went crazy and murdered everybody. Uh, but she's chosen to forget that and not remember that. And now she's got to confront it. She has to deal with it somehow. So the, the demon bear fight is fine. You know, Roberto sunspots up, which I do like that they had. Um, he burns his clothes off, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah, which I, I liked that. I like, you know, because that, that was, it's been a problem for most of our, our flame on guys. In Marvel Universe, they have to have some kind of special suit that allows them to not be, you know, totally nude after they... Yeah, not everybody can be like the Hulk where you have tattered pants. Yes, you know, pants that just magically size to the, the, you know, various sizes you need to be. But slightly shredded at the ankles. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but they're fighting the bear. It's a losing battle. It's, It's just too powerful. All of them kind of get 
taken out one right after the other and and ultimately it's it's Danny that has to do the uh, the difficult task of defeating the bear which which makes sense um, she has a nice little moment Adam Beach comes back he doesn't just have to die at the front he gets to actually have lines and like a, a scene which is good for you Adam Beach way to go make sure that they let you talk in these movies because they sure didn't in Suicide Squad <laughs> Um, so right as rain is about to be, to be murdered by the demon bear, Danny wakes up and, and, you know, soothes the savage beast, right? She doesn't have to defeat it. She has to incorporate it into herself, accept it. And, you know, it, it sort of just disappears and, you know, catharsis, um, which is great. Yeah. Again, I, my biggest beef with this movie is that it it was set up from the very beginning to have these major moments of emotional catharsis of growth, change, acceptance, right? And and then it doesn't really build to them. It just expects you to accept them. And and that's the film's like biggest failing. Uh so the film ends with our our heroes and heroines um basically deciding that they're going to to begin the walk to whatever's next right so they you know cannonball throws a, a rock and realize they realize of course that the shield is down and they can kind of go wherever they want and and so we get you know a breakfast club ending of everybody just kind of walking away like all right yeah. our lives can begin now and and that's it so you know that's the breakdown of the film it's it's problematic but, you know, before we get into our, our sort of final assessments, I want to say that for some reason, and, and really even some reasons that I, I have a difficult time articulating, I like this movie more than it deserves to be liked. Yeah, I do too. And I, and I think it's really just because it's doing something with X-Men and, and, and Marvel characters in general that we just don't see, which is trying to tell a smaller story. It fails at it pretty spectacularly in some ways but the fact again the fact that this exists and is a piece of media that i can consume and it is literally just five kids in a couple of rooms having inarticulate and badly constructed conversations for 70 minutes of its runtime is so fascinating and interesting to me that i'm kind of willing to just give it a pass you know like I kind of feel the same way. I I enjoyed the movie. I had no expectations going in because I just don't... I try not to follow much about a film until I've seen it, and then I'll go back and learn everything about it. And That's let's just, be honest, the X-Men franchise has beaten expectation out of you at this point, hasn't it? it yeah, I, I, don't, I don't keep up with it because I just don't... I've been hurt before. Um, <laughs> and you'll be hurt again. And I'll sure. be hurt again. And I was hurt by this movie in some ways, too. However, I still think it was worth making. I think it was worth releasing. I kind of wish that it had been given more of a chance. Because um, yeah. I like it. I, mm-hmm. I like that it's at least trying. I feel like in the large, generic sea of comic book films... If you can do anything to set yourself apart, you've won something. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I'm just so excited at the possibility of these smaller stories. I have a feeling now what Marvel's going to do is all of these are going to get pushed to Disney+. Plus. They're not going to be theatrically released movies that you can go and watch and enjoy. They're going to be these like eight-episode series where it's like, oh, we're going to do Squirrel Girl, right? You know, because she's kind of small and cool. Um, and, and it'll be the Squirrel Girl show, right? We're yeah. not going to get like a movie that's about that. Uh, kind of like what they're doing with Ms. Marvel. Like the new, you know, Kamala Khan, the new Ms. Marvel, is a fantastic character, brilliant character, so good. And they're not going to put her in a movie. They're going to put her in a Disney Plus show. And that just, like, I have Disney Plus, so it's fine. I'll watch it. I'm sure it'll be great. But at the same time, I'm like, but you could that's do a more. different kind of treatment, right? It's a different kind of appreciation for that character. Whereas this is like a, you know, or at least was intended to be a theatrically released you know, product. So, uh, you know, New Mutants for me, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I sort of unreasonably love it just because it's so weird and so unlikely to have existed. Um, you know, a, a young adult X-Men movie that is, is competent, right? It's, it's not bad. It's yeah, just it's missing got its some parts. cringy moments in it. Some genuinely just over the top, like, yeah, why did you do that? But all of the X-Men movies do. Um, one of the reasons I was motivated to rewatch X2, like I said, was this movie. And I wanted to go back and look for those sort of cringy moments. And they're definitely present. Oh, yeah. And we gave them a pass the X-Men movies, or at least most of them. Um, and I feel like we could give this one a pass, too. Yeah. I guess the closest one that tried to do this was X-Men First Class. Um, you know, to have, like, this small group of characters who bond. But they only get, like, one scene to bond before they all start getting murdered. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so at least we get more than that in this where we, we really do see characters spending some time together. I just, I just wish that their conversations, what they choose to talk about, how they choose to reveal themselves to each other wasn't so by the numbers. And, and that's really what it feels like. It's like, okay, we, we, we know these characters backstories, what made them, you know, the traumatic inciting incident of their lives and all we're going to reveal about them is that incident. Right, we'll drip feed it to you so that by the end of it, you can be like, oh, that guy murdered his girlfriend. Uh, that girl murdered her tribe. That girl murdered a priest. That guy <laughs> murdered, murdered his Murder, dad. murder, murder. Yeah, it's like, it, and maybe that's part of it too, is they all basically have the same backstory. You yeah. Know, I, I, did the, I did a murder. Right? Like, <laughs> that's their backstory. And that's what makes them so sad. And it's like, yeah, is that bad? Totally. But, there are other you know, bad things that happen. There's other people. bad stuff that could happen, right? You know, I did a treason. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I did a sedition, right? Um, so there's there's certainly room there for for some variety. And again, it, I I don't want to make it sound like they weren't. They really are very close to a lot of the comic characters' backstories. They are a um, little bit of massaging here and there, but. Um, I, I would have liked to see more variety or just, you know, have that not be the central thing that you reveal about the character. Have that character go and say, like, this is what happened. Now here's the rest of me, right? I'm afraid 
that the next time that I fly into the sky, it's not just going to be my bottom half that explodes. Right? <laughs> you know, let, let there be something else that's driving this character. Then, you know, I, I unfortunately killed my dad in a mining accident, um, you know, like that kind of stuff. So, um, all right, well, let's, let's move to our final phase. Uh, so what is our one thing, right? So something that could have changed the, the outlook for new mutants. Uh, it was a film that came out behind the eight ball. It never really moved outside of that position. And if anything, the, the world that we lived in, in the year 2020, uh, did absolutely nothing to help it. But what is something that could have shifted the fortunes of New Mutants, in your opinion? I think what could have helped is not removing the horror elements entirely, but shortening them greatly. Mm. Maybe removing the smiley face villains. I I would have done something else for Ileana. Um, and focused maybe less on the visual manifestations and, and more like what happened with rain in the chapel. Um, mm -hmm. Something a little bit smaller and creepier. And instead of having those horror beats be so long and so overwhelming in parts, replace that with genuine character development yeah. um, for everyone. Just them interacting, them having private moments, them having, you know, some reflection, um, Maybe some flashbacks that are not tragic in nature, just one or two. Uh, I found myself at the end of the movie just wishing that we had spent more time with each of these people and just knew more about them. Um, so that's what I would have done. And I, I have to believe that maybe there is a version or there was originally a version of this film that probably had more of that stuff in it. But that's it for me. Yeah, I, I agree uh, totally that this film, given its structure, given its scale, you've you've taken you've taken your movie out of the realm where. Well, it has a lot of explosions, so everything will be fine, right? You don't have that anymore. So if you are more akin to a, you know, indie YA perks of being a wallflower, but I'm also a mutant kind of structure you have to delve into your characters more because that's where your movie is going to going to happen is in the, the reveal and, and you know bonding of these characters and for me that was really the core thing is that we need in, in addition to your suggestion really sort of ancillary to it almost exactly is i needed to see this team being formed right this is this is a superhero origin story right we're telling the origin of the new mutants right the, this group coming together as a, I don't want to call it a fighting force, but as a, as a group who's going to grow to rely on each other. And this movie completely fails at justifying on screen in a way that we can see and understand why these people, as soon as they leave these grounds, they don't just turn in opposite directions and go. <laughs> like, why are they going to hang together? Why are yeah. they going to stick together? They've had this experience where they fought the demon bear, sure, but like what is going to bond them together and make them become this team that, you know, if there was a series of these in Boone's mind that he thought he could do, what's going to keep them together? This movie doesn't tell me that. Yeah. 
right? There's nothing, you know, I kind of understand why maybe Sam and Bobby would hang out. They seem kind of okay. Obviously, Rain and Danny are going to hang out because they're, you know, in a budding relationship. Why is Ileana going to stay? Why is anybody going to care if she leaves or not? Um, like, that kind of stuff is is really unclear. And that's what this movie needs because those character through lines are what is going to anchor a story like this and make it stick in my mind and, and make me want to revisit it. Cause I'm going to want to come back and see these characters again and see them grow and change and do cool things. Um, you know, that's kind of one of the things that the original X-Men, even though it too is a flawed execution of this does well by the end of that movie, when you see all of them fighting together, because we've seen them in action, limited fashion, we sort of understand why they would eventually sort of grow into this team which really gets solidified in X2, which is why X2 is the better one, is that the team is established, we know what they're doing, and, and they kind of go. Um, but that's really what was missing from this for me, is just the justification of this group and, and who they are. The other thing that I would throw on, because I really think it goes hand in hand, is fun. This movie's yeah. very dour. Um, yeah. There is no... And not like jokey, stupid levity. Like nobody needs to stand up and start tossing puns at people. But this is also a movie about a bunch of teenagers and teenagers get up to goofy shit. And we really only we really only see them do that in one scene. And what they choose to do is flip each other over in wheelchairs and play the tambourine. And like some X-Men movies have have really had some delightful moments in them. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I find everything with Quicksilver in any scene just delightful. Oh, yeah. His scenes and in the last couple of X-Men, like big X-Men movies, are the reason to watch those movies. They're delightful. Awesome. I love that Evan Peters in the first place. And boy, I just love Quicksilver. And I love what they've done with that character. So when I think of fun, I think of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And this was missing that. Yeah. Um, and the X-Men are kind of a perfect, you know, just in general, mutants are, are a perfect way you can have fun because you can create all of these unique powers and you can put them in these ridiculous situations and make really fun and interesting and engaging things happen. And it didn't do that. No. Um, and that, you know, given the characters they saddled themselves to, you know, the you know, it's not like you're, you're going to be able to get your fastball scene where Colossus is tossing Wolverine at a bunch of dudes or anything. But certainly it might have been neat to see, you know, Ileana teleport Cannonball, right? Like, you know, maybe Cannonball's, he, he can't get through the Demon Bear's attack. It sees him coming, bats him away. So Ileana, like, you know, sets him up a, a teleport, he flies through and then she teleports him into his face, you know, like we could have seen some of those character interactions, right? That's the kind of stuff. I mean, as, as a longtime comic book fan, those are the kinds of interactions you go to a team movie to see. Right. And, and if anything, again, this is one thing that Marvel has learned to execute on. Right. So in, in their big team fights, when you've got all of these different superheroes doing stuff, you don't just see them in isolation where they're like, Oh, Captain America's punching a dude, right? It's like, no, Captain America held up his shield and Thor threw his hammer at it and it bounced off the shield and then murdered a bunch of dudes. Like yeah. you, those interactions are really exciting for these types of films. And this movie doesn't really have any of that stuff. And 
it had been fine if it had been replaced with or supplemented by deeper emotional change and resonance, but it doesn't really have much of that either. Uh, I love that they defeat the bear by Danny accepting the bear by her acknowledging its presence and calming it down. That's great. That's yeah. good. That's thematically appropriate. Absolutely have that, but other stuff too. Other stuff too. It's it and and earn the demon bear thing. Don't just like dump that in and say, oh well, that that'll take care of that. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think it would take much. Like I said, I already have like an a somehow growing and unreasonable affection for this movie. I I don't know what it is, but I like it. I like its overall approach, for the most part. I like I love the scale. Like I think that's what I love the most is that I just love that it's five kids in a room. Like and I I want I want that with more X-Men stuff. You know, so it, it's really just these these tweaks. And the, the fact that the film was denied reshoots, even the planned ones, maybe that's part of it. Maybe these were pieces they intended to go get or wanted to go get and they just didn't get the chance. I don't know. But I I even with those wonder. problems, I like what's here. But I, yeah, I wonder for sure. So what would be your failure piece rating for this one? How, how, where on our failure piece scale where 100 is a absolute failure piece? It was a failure, yes, but it is a masterpiece that deserves to be viewed and seen and enjoyed. Or you know, further down the scale where it's a piece of something else. This is further down the scale. I don't think it's a piece um, necessarily. Um I think this is like a 70 for me because there are things that I really like about it. I think mm -hmm. overall it's a fun movie and I can't imagine that if you, if you don't nitpick and you just sit back and sort of take it in, you'll have a good time. Um, but that said, there's, there's nothing remarkable about it or exceptional about it. So mm -hmm. I can't really take it much higher than that. Yeah, it's it's definitely in that road for me. I'm, I'm going to go a bit higher because, again, I I'm, I'm having trouble even articulating why I think this movie's worth people's time. And I've probably dogged on it more than I've praised it over the course of our discussion. But I, I this is about it. This is like an 80 for me, like it's just a little bit higher. It's it's problematic. It is not just slam dunk. Absolutely. You're going to love this kind of thing. And in, in some ways, you may not like it unless you have the, the sort of pretense that X-Men movies work in the smaller scale. Like if you're willing to even go along for that ride. Like if, if X-Men for you is Sansa Stark floating in the middle of a bunch of things, making them burn, then I don't know if this is for you. Yeah. But if you're willing to accept a, some, a sort of off the beaten path X-Men story that's willing to do some different things and tell something that's more about the people involved and not just the powers, man, it's cool. And admittedly could have been cooler, but it's, it's still pretty cool. Uh, again, my, my contention is that this, this movie will, will hit cult status because people are going to discover it and even though it's it's not that great, the fact that it's not super widely known is probably just going to buoy people saying like, "No, this is this is for me. This is my yeah. movie." Um, and I'm okay. And I with really that. hope that happens for it. Yeah. I hope that that's its future, because it was it was good. 
yeah, it is it is one of those pleasant surprises. I went in with my expectations low, and for once, they were slightly exceeded, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, check out The New Mutants. Find it on a streaming service near you, wherever it may be, and, and give it a whirl. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say spend a significant amount of money to acquire it or get a hold of it, unless you're just desperate for some X-Men action of any kind. But I, I think we both agree that it's certainly worth a look, especially if you have any affection uh, for Chris Claremont X-Men uh, and what that means. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up on that note. Uh, so where can you be found on social media, Kate? I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter. Very nice. And I can be found at TBaskin. And of course, you can get us at FailurePeace on Twitter if you need to get a hold of us together. Or you can get us at FailurePeace at gmail.com. Uh, or Twitter is FPeace Theater. Sorry, I always get that flipped up. Uh, but in any case, uh, if you want to reach out, love to hear from anybody. And uh, of course, we will see you next week. Bye bye.